Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats and join the conversation there. Give us some feedback. We also invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Plus, you can go right there to that website, nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts, uh, and we're there along with all the other fine NR podcasts. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews in various places, please. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team host, standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you doing? I don't know, Scott. I, I thought I was gloomy last time we did the show when we were covering Radiohead, but boy, things have just gotten worse. Hey, each morning I get up, I die a little. You know, I can barely stand on my feet. I take a look in the mirror and I cry and I cry. And then I just ask myself, can anybody find me somebody to love? Perhaps we find the answer to that question in this episode. Jeff is on Twitter as well, at EsotericCD. And we welcome in our guest for this program. He's a law professor, think tank researcher, writing on law and democracy for outlets like The Wall Street Journal, The Weekly Standard, National Affairs, many other publications, and even the occasional legal journal. You can find him on Twitter at Adam J. White, D.C. He's Adam White. Adam, welcome on to Political Beats. Oh, thanks, guys. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, Jeff, I don't know if, if you're going to find somebody to love, but for the next couple of hours, uh, you'll be my best friend. So. <laughs> well, you know what? You make me real. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I, I'm very excited about this. I've been looking forward to it, and I, I don't want to get into spoilers, but I'm I'm really really excited about the part in the middle where we break into the operatic section. I think it's going to be really special. <laughs> We're still working on arranging ourselves in some sort of diamond formation, though. The faces. Uh, before we get to the band, which uh, should be clear by now, we we first like to dig into a bit about our guest, uh, Adam White, and and uh, want to find out how did you sort of get into the lane that you're in now professionally, Adam. Well, well I, I'm, I'm a recovering lawyer. I, I was, came up through college knowing I wanted to be a lawyer, went off to law school, graduated, came down to D.C., practiced law for a little over a decade at a couple of law firms, and then moved on to the Hoover Institution and now also uh, the Scalia Law School. Um, and along the way, even while I was practicing, I was always doing a lot of writing. I've always enjoyed writing I was, as a kid. And so uh, it just was sort of a natural transition moving from legal practice into to writing about these things. And the, uh, the chosen band, the chosen group that, uh, that Adam has chosen for today's program, as you might have picked up already, is a little band named Queen. There's a movie out these days that's doing pretty well at the box office, and, and uh, that, you know, the, the history of that movie, not entirely accurate, so we can help to par- set uh, part of that straight during today's program. Uh, but first, we turn the floor back over to Adam to uh, explain to us why you, in fact, love Queen so much, how you got into them, and, and, and why anyone else should give a darn about this band called Queen. So like a lot of young Gen, Gen Xers, uh, I discovered Queen uh, sitting in a movie theater watching the Wayne's World movie, uh, where they break into the Bohemian Rhapsody opera in, uh, in the back of Wayne's car. Mamma mia, mamma mia. Mamma mia, let me go. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me, for me, for me.
and was just blown away by it and immediately ran out and bought uh, the, the Queen's Greatest Hits 2, which they had just put out basically to coincide with the release of the movie and became a total completist. Uh, Queen's probably the first band I really, really loved you know, growing up before that, I was listening to sort of conventional American rock like Aerosmith and, and Guns N' Roses and so on. Um, and and listened to Queen, basically Queen and only Queen, uh, from junior high into the beginning of high school. And then I got to admit, I, I basically left it to the side. I started listening to The Who. Um, Roger Daltrey, as it happened, performed at the Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert in 91. And got into The Who and The Kinks and all of that. And basically set Queen aside for almost 20 years. Uh, spent most of college and onward listening to things like uh, Oasis and the jam and style council and Paul Weller, which really is now still my sort of mainstream of pop music. But in the last couple of years, I started um, getting out the Queen albums and downloading some of the live albums they had been putting out. Um, and when the movie came out and we talked about doing this podcast, I was really amused because, like I said, Queen was a huge part of my sort of musical life as a kid. And then I set it aside for almost two decades. And for the last few months, getting back into that, listening to the albums, watching the live performances and, and holy smokes, if we had YouTube back when we were kids, <laughs> right? I mean, I, my, my entire diet of Queen videos was basically a couple of store-bought VHS tapes and, you know, the, the, the recorded day-long Queen special on MTV the day of the the tribute, uh, the concert for life, Freddie Mercury tribute, ninety-one. You know, you break the tab off and make sure no one records over it. <laughs> that was basically my stockpile of of Queen music videos. But now, going back, you can watch all these old, like all these bands, right? You can watch all these concerts, um, including footage of the live albums that were once available. It's been just incredible and a lot of fun the last few months. Um, listening to this and then hearing the the sort of the reemergence of the debates over over Queen in the aftermath of this movie and as we'll get into I'm I'm not I, I was not excited about the movie at all I was aware for the last almost decade that this thing was in the works and it was a very troubled movie project and I think the criticism you've heard about the movie is is all well founded one of the reasons why honestly I haven't even seen the movie and I doubt I will until it comes out um, in streaming um, but the music itself is really special um, and I'm excited to talk about it. Queen, oh gosh, what can I say about Queen that isn't going to offend our listeners today? Um, uh, it's not good. The verdict is not that good for me, I have to admit it. I don't like Queen that much. I never have. Um, and uh, before you guys you know, hang me from the yardarm, let me explain where I'm coming from. I don't hate them. And in fact, particularly over these last couple weeks, months actually, as I've been you know, getting into them, listening to their albums, uh, I've come to respect them in a lot of different ways and a lot of very strange ways. I'm going to be throwing out a bunch of very contrarian hot takes for the next you know, hour or so. Um, for me, Queen, again, just like Adam. My awareness of them basically was created by Wayne's World. You know, Bohemia Rhapsody. I went out and I bought the compilation. I bought the CD. It was called Classic Queen, uh, and it was a weird thing. It was basically supposed to be their latter era, their '80s hits, but then they, you know, kind of, you know, changed up the track listing to throw on Bohemia Rhapsody because of the movie. A couple of other older stuff from the '70s that I didn't like then, but I've since come to appreciate, like Keep Yourself Alive um, and Stone Cold Crazy. Uh, but basically, it was a lot of their '80s stuff. And the funny thing is is that 11-year-old Jeff actually kind of liked that a lot.
I still, you know, I got to admit, this is during my butt seriously days, as I call them. And, and uh, <laughs> hearing a song like The Miracle didn't make me kind of gag on my spoon the way it might today. And, of course, that CD also had other great songs like you know, Under Pressure, which is a classic by any reckoning, or uh, Innuendo and uh, The Show Must Go On, Who Wants to Live Forever, all these various and interesting 80s-era Queen songs. But then what happened? Well, in high school, I became a classic rock fan, and that's all she wrote. And I never, for some reason, ever came back to Queen. And in fact, as recently as like a couple of years ago, a year ago on Twitter, I was announcing with a weird sort of pride that, yes, I had never heard a Queen album, not a single one, all the way through. Do all their greatest hits. How can you not? How can you not hear that stuff on the radio? You'd have to be a corpse not to be familiar with their greatest hits. But none of their albums, never heard them. And so I was very surprised when I went to pick up their albums and start listening to their discography. I won't lie. I was expecting to be bowled over. I was expecting that this would be a great band that, you know, for some reason or another, I had neglected, had fallen by the wayside, and that was not how I reacted to them. I have a lot of issues with Queen, and I'll try to summarize them right now up front. And then later on during the show, talk about the exceptions to those rules. The first one, the most important one, the one that you really have to start with is Freddie Mercury because Freddie dominates everything. I think it's fair to say Freddie Mercury has one of the most powerful voices in the history of rock music. I don't think there's any sense in denying it. He's, it's not just operatic. It's very expressive. His ability to go all over the, uh, the range of notes from a baritone all the way to a countertenor is shocking. There's just no voice really that's ever sounded quite like his, not even the big, you know, the, the hard rock or heavy metal screechers. Nobody had a voice like Mercury's. But the problem is that the voice of Mercury came attached to the songwriting style of Freddie Mercury, and that's something I don't like. I found for the most part that Queen's music, especially during their so-called classic years, uh, the, uh, the police are already coming to arrest me for my <laughs> Queen thing. Okay, your officer, officer, I, I'm not going to speak to you. I want my lawyer. No, um, the issue with Freddie Mercury's songwriting style and the style of the rest of the band, for that matter, is that their songs are about nothing. This is something I really, really nagged at me. Starting with their first album, I moved all the way through their, class, their so-called classic 70s period. Almost all of these songs were about nothing. There's just a general air of meaninglessness to their music lyrically that doesn't sit well with me given the pomposity and the incredible dedication and focus to production that goes into all of that work. And it all seems to be basically for nothing. It's, it's like the worst sort of pure theatricality where there's nothing underlying it, which also, by the way, gets me to another issue, which is that I could forgive those things if the underlying melodies themselves were so good that it didn't matter. I'm a big lover of prog music, okay? There's a lot of prog music out there where the lyrics are things that you best forget exist, much less <laughs> spend any time thinking about. But a lot of Queen's music outside of their big hits that everybody knows, man, I, I just feel like it's a half-baked kind of a proposition. They don't come together. They don't add up. There are some times where they do. I want to focus on those. But you know, have you ever listened to Queen 2? That album is an insult to the ears. There's nothing on it that works. There's no melodies. There's no memorable hooks. There's no structure. It's a disaster coming and going. And I think you can say a lot the same about you know their supposed classic era of, say, you know, Night at the Opera, Day at the Races, uh, News of the World. Uh, these are kind of takes that, that are going to completely turn off anybody who's a fan of the band listening to me talk about them right now. And I want you to know that I'm actually not completely um, dogmatic about these. I think there are times when they threw me for a loop and gave me a nice surprise as well. But there's something about Queen that 
will never quite make it for me. I want to say in their defense, one thing that I really came to appreciate about this band before we uh, you know, uh, you know, did the show is that one thing I didn't know as a non-fan is I just assumed, I think like a lot of people do, that Queen is basically just a Freddie Mercury project. It's Freddie Mercury and you know, maybe with an occasional bit of Brian May playing guitar in the background there. That was what I thought Queen was. One of the things you realize when you go through these albums is they are a real group, a group in the truest sense of the word. All four of them sing, all four of them play, all four of them write songs, and all four of them wrote good songs too it wasn't just like they were coming up with the Ringo tracks on these various albums every member of the band wrote at least one incredibly famous song that you know and love and probably just assumed was written by Freddie but it wasn't so I really do like the fact that they are a true collaborative group and a collaborative team in that respect and I also like the fact that their later material the material that gets a lot less focus and is sometimes dismissed as being a little too synthy or a little too 80s and 90s sounding I think is actually a good deal better than everybody expects it to be. And to me, this is the sound of a group that was growing a lot more comfortable in their skin. And that music hasn't dated nearly as much as so much else from that era has uh, in a way that genuinely surprises me. But anyways, you know, I'm sorry for, for, for being the, the turd floating ominously in the punch bowl on this show. Uh, I just wanted to start by uh, lowering everyone's expectations. <laughs> I think it's going to be neat because judging by reactions, I think all three of us might have a, a kind of a different favorite era of the band. So that, that could be interesting. Before we, we dig in in Queen 1, Queen 2, I, I, I guess my Queen uh, um, uh, knowledge and, and exposure predates both of you because my dad had an 8-track version of A Night at the Opera uh, that I recall uh, playing. And the early days of VH1, they played Bohemian Rhapsody constantly. And this was even before the Wayne's World, uh, you know, s- star turn. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, that video was on VH1 constantly. I saw it over and over again. And uh, One Vision from, uh, from Iron Eagle was played nonstop on MTV at that point. And so those three points were sort of my, my introduction to, uh, to, to Queen back in the day. And, and I... For, for a long time, and I think this probably is, still holds true in terms of an overall kind of opinion, is that Queen is, is one of the bands that absolutely benefits from a greatest hits treatment. Meaning, you know, they, they have recorded some simply outstanding songs, and many of them, of course, you know and, and love. Um, but if you had, you know, growing up, I had greatest hits one and two, and I don't think, and even listening back now, I missed out on a ton by not having access to the album tracks on a day at the races or or sheer heart attack, right? Um, I think the greatest hits treatment for a band like this fits them pretty well. Now, there are some exceptions, and we'll, we'll get to those through the program. The thing that brought me back to Queen, actually, you guys, you know, have Wayne's World as a, as a touchstone, and I love the film back in the day as well, and still do. But uh, actually, the film that brought me back to Queen a bit was Shaun of the Dead, which is a fantastic movie. And Don't Stop the, Me Now. Yeah, one of the highlights <laughs> in the movie is the bar scene set to Don't Stop Me Now. I'm a rocket ship on my way to Mars on a collision course. I am a satellite. I'm out of control. I'm a sex machine ready to We 
reacquainted with the song and reacquainted with a good deal of Queen at that time, thanks to uh, thanks to Shaun of the Dead. So that was my kind of re-entry point in, into Queen. And and just to echo Jeff's point, I, I think it's really important to understanding the band as they uh, matured and as they evolved. Yeah, I mean, all four of these guys, and even bef- even before knowing that that all four wrote and, and all four took turns at the microphone singing, and, and of course the harmonies. I, I think all four members are so distinctive. I mean, Freddie Mercury, yeah. of course, but Brian May's guitar tone is is so distinctive. Uh, you know, r- the songs that Roger Taylor sang and, and wrote uh, very much uh, are his, and he's a, he's a very very good drummer. And then Deacon, you know, the strong silent John Deacon, who wrote really wrote some of the band's best songs ever. Uh, you know, very much in the background, like so many bassists are, I suppose. But each of them very strong on their instrument, and you know, Freddie's case is his voice, of course. And each of them brought something to the to the band. Each of them made part of their success happen, which to me makes it slightly more understanding that uh, that that you know May and, and Taylor continue to truck on this day as Queen plus whomever. Right? They still they were such a big part of the band, even if externally people saw Freddie Mercury as being the leader, which which he was, but being this charismatic guy, it wasn't all about Freddie Mercury when it came to the actual music itself. And we'll kind of see that as we go through. I think. Can we talk about the Queen sound just a little bit before we jump into the album? Absolutely, um, go ahead. We touched on this. I mean, I just in getting ready for this, I just ticked through trying to break down what makes Queen's sound so distinctive. And I mean, we already touched on a couple of them, obviously, right? One is Freddie's distinctive voice, although it changes, as we've already said, it changes so much over time. He starts that sort of the first third of the career with a sort of you know airy falsetto a lot of the time. Even on the rock on the rock songs, his voice is a little thin and high. And then you get into this middle part, you know, starting around News of the World, where you can start to feel this this sort of broadening and deepening of the voice. There's more just more depth to it. And then at the end, as they start doing more stadium shows and the songs are being written to suit that, he steps into this totally different, you know, arena, I guess. But but so the first ingredient is the voice. The second is the guitar. Um, the guitar, Brian May's guitar sound. It's, it's, the story behind this is just amazing. You know, Brian May is growing up, a scientist. He ends up getting a PhD in astrophysics. He starts it before the band, ends it after the band. But he and his dad in, in the early 60s build a guitar, you know, partly just because it's cheaper, but also in part you know, sort of as a, a great father-son nerd project. And they build this guitar with a neck out of the mahogany taken from a 100-year-old fireplace and the, and the, the body of the guitar... Uh, the wood is a variety of layers of wood with a, a, a mahogany <laughs> it's like, veneer. It's like and, the Wonder Boy of guitars. The gears, the, the, the springs inside are from a motorbike. It's just amazing. It gets the sound. But then in addition to that, the bass player, John Deacon, he's also, you know, a nerd. And he builds this amp. They call it, And the guitar is called the Red Special or the, or the Fireplace Guitar. Um, the amp, the Deakey amp, John Deacon builds out of pieces he gets out of a dumpster um, a circuit board powered by a nine volt battery, no controls on it. Brian May adds um, some treble ampl- amplification to it, and this becomes Brian May's amp. And this system, that guitar and that amp, produce these amazing symphonic sounds. <laughs>
much of the band for the first decade of their career, they stamp a disclaimer on their albums. Yes. No one played synthesizer because <laughs> otherwise nobody would ever believe these sounds were either coming out of a guitar or coming out of the guitar with the help of, um, you know, post-production with Roy Thomas Baker. So you get the voice, you get the guitar, you get these layered vocals where, where May and Taylor, the drummer, and Freddie Mercury, they sing all of these, these parts together. Each of them sings every part and they layer it over and over again. This wall of sound, which obviously over 20 years sometimes gets a bit repetitive. And Roger Taylor once said, you know, we had it down to so much of a science, we just started calling it the sausage factory because they could just produce these things. But you get these layers of vocals. But then even within that, they're all singing each other. They're all singing all the parts on these, these, these layers. But, you know, Brian has sort of a nice lower singing voice. Roger Taylor, the drummer's range is incredible. Yes, yeah. And he has this deep growling voice. But the, what he really stands out, especially in concert, is the high voice, the backing vocals. And Freddie has obviously incredible range himself. But as the band sort of settles in and gets more comfortable over time, he's able to sort of settle into the middle parts. You listen to these concerts in the 80s, and Freddie is never hitting the high parts. He's taking this powerful middle range and letting Roger Taylor sing the high parts, especially on you know songs like Under Pressure, Radio Gaga, and so on. So you get all that. Um, you get John Deacon's bass. And these guys came from such different musical backgrounds with May and Taylor being the rockers, Freddie having that music hall stuff. But although I, I push back about, against that a little bit, uh, he also wrote songs you know, that were hard rockers. But then Deacon's own influence is really Motown and soul and funk. And that comes out obviously in hits like Another One Bites the Dust, but it's present throughout. And so you get all of that together. Um, you know, obviously the, the band is, is ridiculous. It's, it's called Queen. It's, it's you know, over the top and ridiculous. Um, but in, I think looking back 20 years later, it just occurred to me after a while that I think, you know, teenage boys kind of wander into becoming Queen fans the same way they wander into becoming Ayn Rand fans. Right. It's just so over the top and campy and ridiculous and kind of brazen. Um, and if you take it too seriously, you're really going to go off the rails. But if you just enjoy it for uh, being sort of a ridiculous um, endeavor, you know, it's 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 very, very powerful and entertaining. You know, to that point, that actually is a great way to sort of take us into the discussion of the beginning of Queen's career. And of course, that that's with those first two albums that come out in 1973 and 1974. And of course, it's just Queen and Queen 2. I got to tell you, when I went to listen to these albums, one of the more hilarious discoveries that I had no idea about before I picked these records up is that Apparently, Freddie Mercury was just a huge like fantasy Dungeons and Dragons nerd <laughs> yeah. as well. We talk about things that you find yourself wandering into that are ridiculous and over the top. Uh, I don't really have very much good to say about either of these two albums. I think the first one is better than the second one, which I legitimately hate. But how hilarious is it that like you know, when Freddie Mercury, young Freddie, sits down to like, oh, what am I going to write about? What, what, what's my muse? What is muse is writing about fairy kings and ogre battles and black queens and white queens and what was it, the fairy feller's master stroke and this magical kingdom that he invented in his mind called Rye. Ooh, the yeah. seven seas of Rye. It's the most nerdy thing on the planet, and yet it's the premise that underpins most of the songs on their first two albums, which is the last thing that somebody like me, whose knowledge of Queen was like, you know, another one bites the dust, <laughs> you know, and under pressure would have ever expected when they went back to this. It's like, it's like the people who know Jethro Tull from like their like really obnoxious late 70s and early 80s work finding out they were a blues rock band in the, in the late 60s it's like one of those things that it's not as much of a, a neck snapping transition because some of those elements are still there on those those initial albums you got brian may's got his guitar concept pretty much nailed from the start right from the beginning of keep yourself alive which is the first song on queen and is 
I think a lot of people might even argue, say that's one of the best songs they ever did. I, it's clearly the best song on the first album. Um, not true, not true, not true. Not true? Well, I got to say, I think it is too. Well, I loved a million women in a belladonna case, and I had a million dinners brought to me on silver I think the hey, rest hey, of that Jeff? first album is like, it's okay. It's like, it's actually, you know, there's some nice little moments here and there, but hey, other Jeff? than maybe the night Jeff? comes down, which I like, the rest of it feels a lot pretty generic to me. Like this is a band that again, has a lot of nice ideas, but doesn't have the focus and doesn't edit itself. And, and that really doesn't play to, to its benefit. Scott, what were you going to say? So, so yeah, Queen Queen 1, Queen 2, my, my thoughts are actually very similar to Jeff. So I'll keep it short and let and let uh, Adam perhaps defend them. I, I think Queen 2 is just, is just awful. I mean, I, I know, I think Axl Rose is a big fan of Queen 2, and I think maybe Kurt Cobain and other. Man, I, I don't hear a whole lot of, uh, in Queen 2. Uh, like White Queen, that, that's a horrendous song. Uh, someday, One Day, that's a bad song too. Seven Seas Arrive, the last song, which was actually teased at the end of the first album, is the one that is probably worth a listen. Uh, and on Queen 1, yeah, I, I think Keep Yourself Alive is really fantastic. Um, Liar's a, a decent, uh, heavy song. Um, but I mean, like my fairy king is ridiculous. Um, uh, uh, great king rat is, uh, you know, it's all right. There are some really lengthy guitar solos. You start to hear some what Brian May's going to be doing in, in the future too. Uh, the, you know, on one and two, there's not a lot that I pulled through, and we'll see if Adam differs from from Jeff and I. But uh, I think that you know the, the, the chronology, the discography, really starts with with sheer heart attack. So. Uh- I'm not a huge fan of the first two albums. In fact, Queen 2, I think, is the last Queen album I ever bought, and I didn't feel like I missed out on much. But let me just say a few words in their favor. First, like all bands, all rock bands, Queen 1 is basically them recording the songs they've been playing for the last two years. Um, And so I think there are actually some catchy songs in there. I'm not a big fan of the fantasy stuff myself, so those songs sort of fall away. Um, Keep Yourself Alive is fine, although that the sort of extended guitar intro is sort of tedious. You know, they joked when they set out to write their second single, Seven Seas Arrive, they would never have that kind of <laughs> long intro, you know, first song to get going. Keep Yourself Alive is fine. For me, the really great song on the album is Liar, which mm. starts off with this, this sort of ha- this fat, bluesy guitar riff that really breaks the song open, you know, after just some drum work at the beginning. And it's this thick rock song. It's a staple of their live act well into the 80s as their music is changing. And it's the most aggressive rock song, I think, on the first album. There is 
throughout the first album, Queen is doing a lot of sort of movement changes throughout the songs. It's almost like those Metallica songs from the 80s where they go into like seven different movements. <laughs> and so Liar has the same problem where it's a great rock song and then about three quarters yes. of the way through, yeah. they get into this ridiculous sort of calypso drumming and like call and response vocals. And I always fast forward through that. But beyond that, the song is just great. But in terms of the album as a whole, I think it's a really interesting album. It, obviously, people look at its, its, prog- its progressive sound um, there's also some folk in there that's a leftover from um, the band before Freddie joined, before John joined, this band called Smile. Um, uh, but the songs themselves, it's interesting the way they construct them. A lot of movements I already said, a lot of tempo changes. I think the al- the band that this album sounds the most like actually is Led Zeppelin because you get this wide range of influences all the way from acoustic to blues. And then you get those sort of fantasy themes, which, of course, Zeppelin themselves would dabble with in some of their early or you know set the third and fourth albums hey you, you want to know a really strange reference point what's I'll that tell you, i'll tell you what that first queen album sounds like to me it sounds like some rocked up elton john is what yeah. it sounds like yeah. and that's the thing freddie's early voice sounds yeah. so much like a young elton john especially on like his, his again you know his more outre kind of rock yeah. moves like you could definitely see like young queen doing funeral for a friend <laughs> easy <laughs> easy and there's, you know, there's, there's a song towards the end of the first album. It's kind of a forgettable song called Son and Daughters by Brian May. But it really sounds like, you know, Black Sabbath, Iron Man. Or, you know, it occurred to me listening to it again last week. It's like Cream's version of Born Under a Bad Sign. This sort of blues um, moving into uh, early heavy metal. And it's just an interesting album. Now, the second album, Queen 2, like I said, it's the last one I ever bought. I didn't feel like I missed out on much. Um, there's some interesting things in there, too. There's one song, this March of the Black Queen Oh, and by the way, I should say um, Liar, the sort of fat, bluesy song from the first album, that was one of Freddie's songs, right? So it wasn't just the kind of airy fantasy music on that album. I mean, Freddie contributed to, to some of the harder rock, too. The second album is Queen really sort of experimenting with their studio technique. They're really learning the tools that they're going to perfect in Queen's A Night of the Opera. Now, if you hate that album, you're not going to like the tools. But it's interesting to listen sort of in hindsight after that fourth album and listen to Queen 2 as they're figuring out these things, the layered vocals, the, you know, the guitar sound. Um, there's one song near the end called Funny How Love Is where it's drum and piano, but it sounds like Ronnie Spector's just wall of sound as they're throwing everything at it. Um, and and um, in a way, what this album reminds me of, like I said, after I listened to Queen, I became a huge um, fan of The Who. Talk about another sort of overdone, over-intellectualized band. You know, Pete Townsend's Lifehouse Project, um, that becomes Who's Next. But Queen 2 reminds me of the Who Sells Out, where it's an interesting album, but it also you hear all these pieces that become Tommy, the rock opera, sort of coming to the surface in the Who Sell Out. And it's the same thing with Queen 2, where you can hear a lot of the elements of that classic 70s sound coming together as the band learns how to. And just one last thing on that album, my sort of hidden favorite on this on this album is is in the middle it's called The Loser in the End. It's one where the drummer, Roger Taylor, writes it. He sings the lead vocal with a sort of growly voice. And it sounds like sort of the best of the stereophonics, or you know, a little bit like the faces, too, with this sort of stomp, bluesy guitar. And that, that, that the Roger Taylor voice, which is very much like Kelly Jones of stereophonics, a sort of gravelly, sandpapery voice that just becomes a musical instrument of its own. So listen, mothers everywhere to just one mother's son. Remember, it's not so long since you were young. You found 
you realize it, but I may have to invoke Chaplinsky on you because uh, what you just said about comparing the Who Sell Out to Queen 2 are fighting words. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Who Sell Out is one of the greatest albums ever made. It is maybe the greatest Who album, uh, if, if not for Quadrophenia. I agree. I agree. And, and I, I will not sit here and listen to you malign <laughs> the most wonderful Who album ever by comparing it to one of the worst pieces of vinyl that I've ever had the misfortune to listen to. Well, but, think, the, but, but, but I'll say what, what's one I, of the I, great, get your, I get your point otherwise. Yeah, but, but, but no, but peppered throughout the Who Sell Out are those hilarious pirate radio ads and the Heinz Baked Bean ad um, parody and all those things. And in a way, when I hear the sort of nonsense in the early Queen albums, we really get into this in a little bit in the Night of the Opera, I'm sure. I just think of those songs as the Heinz Baked Beans ad of Who Sell Out, <laughs> except for Queen. I'll tell you one album that doesn't have any of those real nonsense moments, and, and this is an album that in a weird way I almost kind of resent slightly, is Sheer Heart Attack, which is yeah. the next album they came out with. Now, you're doing it like I'm doing it, right? You know, you're kind of approaching this all new, fresh from the start in chronological order. Sheer Heart Attack comes on. Start listening to the first side of this album, and then I suddenly think to myself, okay, well, this is it. This is where Queen becomes great, isn't it? Because I am convinced to this day, I think this is their best album. If it's not their best album, it is certainly close. Uh, it is it's almost as if they listened to everything they did on queen two. And they said, okay, now let's not do that. And so what do you have instead on that first side, that first side of, of sheer heart attack, I think is the best side of music that queen ever did. You know, it opens with Brighton rock. Brighton rock is everything that I was imagining a queen, Brian may like, you know, demonstration of guitar fury would actually be. It's just an amazing hard rock song. May's guitar solo on it is is, is a classic. It is one of the, I think one of the classic '70s guitar exhibitions um, of the genre. Right after that, you know, I talk about how much I hate Freddie's kind of music hall jaunts in the mid '70s. But man, the first time he tried to do that was with a song that is one of the finest pieces of music that they ever recorded and one of their most famous songs, and that's Killer Queen. This is the moment that Queen became a hit. This is, I think, this took them to the top of the pops. This was uh, the one that actually made them break out as uh, you know hit singles artists in the United Kingdom and then eventually in the United States as well. Uh, you know, you can say you don't like, you know, Queen, you don't like the bombast, you don't like the, the 
retentively tight harmonies and the whole jaunty piano glitz and gloss. But, you know, at the end of the day, everybody knows, you know, she's a killer queen. She's dynamite like a laser beam, guaranteed to blow your mind. And everybody loves that chorus. It's impossible not to. Um, but you know how I knew this was a good album? Because the drummer wrote a song uh, right after that, and it was the best song on the entire side. I like good things in life, but most of the best things ain't free. So the same situation just cuts like a knife. When you're young and you're old and you're crazy. Yes, that's right. I'm going to say that that Roger Taylor's Tenement Funster, a good which song. is a terrible name, is a fantastic song. Yeah. And I could not understand why I had never heard of it. It goes into the you know, Tenement Funster, then it goes into that little medley with Flick of the Wrist. And there's Freddie again with a, a kind of a Freddie-like song. But my God, it's like they cut out all the fat and the self-indulgence. And then that side ends with Now I'm Here. Which again is kind of like you know it's a great kind of a bookend for Brighton Rock, just another massive guitar explosion. And I thought to myself, well, this is the Queen that I was waiting for. This is the reason people love the band. And in honesty, you know, except for Stone Cold Crazy, which is uh, basically speedcore, uh, it's a Husker Du song, like seven years before hardcore existed as an American genre, and that's impressive as hell. I don't really like the second side that much. I don't like both of those in the lap of the God songs. Uh, but none of that changes the fact that that sheer heart attack is. Just such a, a colossal improvement over everything they had done before. And I resent it precisely because I expected this to be the dawning of their <laughs> golden age. And as far as I'm concerned, they face-planted right after this. We'll get to that. But first, let's talk about this record. I, uh, yeah, for me, my favorite song is Now I'm Here. I, I, I think that w- works so well. It's a, it's a May song with just, I think, one of his greatest riffs, just a hard Brian May riff. And, and it even has Freddie Mercury on piano. Just underneath that noise, you hear his piano kind of cut through that ascending guitar part uh, during, during that pre-chorus kind of, kind of portion. Now I'm Here is just a fantastic song. Now I'm here, now I'm here. think i stay Is unimpeachable. I, I mean, the way it's one of the first times I guess you probably really hear you know that multi-layer. This, this is Roy Thomas Baker's first album, and when when that when the band and that just like rush of when they get you know Killer Queen and all that comes together, that's uh, just a wonderful use of those voices and, and the production techniques of, of that day. 
Um, and, and, you know, Killer Queen is relatively uncluttered compared to other Queen songs, not just on the album, but overall. It's just a very straight song, and that vaudeville piano line is, is, is fantastic. Um, on side two, which Jeff is not as big of a fan of, I, I think he's pretty much right. I mean, the first first side is better than the second. I really kind of like uh, bring back that Leroy Brown, which kind of has this, I think it's a it's a hybrid like banjo ukulele that, that Brian May is playing. And it's worth it just to hear Roger Taylor uh, drum. It's not. It doesn't sound like a technically difficult uh, song, just just based on the way uh, on the way you hear it. But he's doing a lot back there on the drum kit. That's a, I, I like bring back that Leroy Brown, and um, what else? Oh, and Jeff mentioned Tenement Funster, which yes is another Taylor song that uh, is really good, really really good. This is uh, a, a big leap forward. I mean, I I really dislike Queen too, so this is uh, you know by default a leap forward. But it's a solid album from front to back for the most part, dipping a bit on on side two. Yeah, Tenement Funster, one of my favorites on this album too. It's it for me. It's like Ziggy Ziggy Stardust sung by like young Rod Stewart. So it's like Ziggy Stardust with just that again that gravelly kind of Roger Taylor voice. I mean, yeah, this this album is a huge step forward. The total change of influence for them, right? They just finished touring, right. um, yeah. opening up for Mott the Hoople, right? Right, and this this album has much more of that glam rock influence. You get it near the end with this this song that. Brian May writes and sings called uh, She Makes Me, parentheses, Stormtrooper and Stilettos. Um, but, it, you know, it sounds like Super Tramp or something, right? It's, it's just very glam. The first album, the first side of the album is great. I don't have much to say for the second side. I do love, obviously, Stone Cold Crazy, which Metallica goes on to cover um, in the mid-'80s. Um, and I actually like In the Lap of the Gods, the, 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 the revisited version of it, the last song on the album. This was Freddie's first um, effort at writing a huge set closing audience sing along song. They use it to close their 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 concerts until they do. You know, years later, we are the champions, and I just I think it's a great great epic song. It's easy to imagine you know Queen doing it on stage. The first side is is totally amazing, um, starting with Brighton Rock. Um, but one of the reasons why the sound really does kind of come into its own, especially with Brian's role, is Brian is absent from the beginning of the recording of right. this film. You know, when they're on or this album, when they're on tour with with Martha Hoople, um, Brian catches hepatitis. Uh, he probably wasn't the first to catch hepatitis while touring with Martha Hoople. <laughs> but he, um, so he's at, he's kind of laid up for a while while the other three start to get the the guts of the album together. And Brian is able to sort of approach the sound from the outside, and he really realizes. What a what a distinct band it's becoming. What its real power is, and he has time to start to think through. And this is where that, that real scientific mind comes through. He really starts thinking through how to experiment with things like delay, things like echo, and so in songs again like Brighton Rock and Now I'm Here, those sort of guitar approaches really begin to come into their own. But yeah, the best song of the album is by far Killer Queen. You know, despite Freddie's, you know, this is like peak falsetto for Freddie. Um, and the drums aren't great because they're kind of dead. Um, but the lyrics are just astonishing. Uh, just some of my favorite Queen lyrics. My favorite, my favorite part, I have to say, in the whole song, there's a, a line of the song. Um, oh, what is it? What is it? It's, um, uh, it's uh, to avoid complications, she never kept the same address. <laughs> and as that line is happening, the drums kind of is a drum roll. Yeah. And just as the line, as if Freddie hits the end of the line, there's a hotel bell. <laughs> Um, just plain as day, this hotel bell, and it's just this great touch. And Brian, he sort of remarked on this later that it was those sorts of touches that they were putting in just to add things, and it becomes uh, just an amazing song. She 
um, and they 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 forced the split by this first song called "Death on Two Legs," which is a very heavy rocker. It's um it's written by Freddie though, and the lyrics are extremely brutal, so bad that um, Brian May later said he actually felt bad singing this song. <laughs> um, I brought it up on my screen beforehand because these these the, the closing lyrics, uh, insane. You should be put inside you're a sewer rat decaying in a cesspool of pride should be made unemployed make yourself null and void it's just this rant at one point they say you know do you feel like um says feel feel good are you satisfied do you feel like suicide and then this sort of chorus of queen vocals in the background saying i think you should (laughs) um it's just a a horrifically cruel song but it sounds pretty good And then where you go from there is a series of really great rock songs throughout the album. Um, I'm in love with my car. That's a song by the drummer Roger Taylor. He sings it. It's I love it. Some people hate the song. I I'm pretty, don't. I'm like pretty that. sure. I'm pretty sure Chris Scalia hates the song too. Um, okay, can I just say the best thing about I'm in love with my car is the yeah. title, because <laughs> the thing about it is that I I hope it's a joke. And yet I suspect that it's not. I suspect that Roger Taylor genuinely is in love with his car. Well, he wrote about <laughs> oh, a friend, right? He actually, I mean, he basically returns to the song in, their, yeah. in the last album they make when Freddie's Alive with a very similar song. I love this song. In concert, it's great, especially when you get into the early 80s. You can see the footage on YouTube where Roger sings. And obviously, drummers singing lead is always sort of dubious at a rock concert. But it's great fun watching Roger growl out this song and then, you know, just wail away on the drums, sort of in the, in the drum fills. I think it's great, and like a lot of a lot of Queen's early songs, you know, it's not in four four; it's in six eight. Mm-hmm. You know, they've done a lot of songs that are waltzes. There's a second one on this one, um, "Sweet Lady," a sort of bluesy guitar stomper by Brian May. Another one of my favorite songs on the album is in three four, and it's just a it's a a great different sound. I love the Prophet song that you guys have already terribly maligned. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful song. It's this obviously the lyrics come from this strange dream that Brian has, basically about Noah's Ark. Um, it starts with sort of a Japanese sounding guitar intro, but the, there's a couple things that are really great about the song. First, it's Brian's first attempt to um, do a song in drop D tuning, not detuning the whole guitar, but just detuning the low E string down one full step to D. And you get this great, you know, deeper open sound that, that, that he you know, uses throughout. I mean, obviously bands started using drop D a lot more you know, in the late seventies onward, but this is one of the first real, I think first real experiments in it. And so I think it's a great song, but my favorite part, and I was telling you guys about this in the pre-show, there's a moment near the end. It's about halfway through Brian's big guitar solo at the end. I mean, so many of Brian's guitar solos operate in, in sort of movements or stages. And there's this one moment where it almost sounds like the band, it's hard to describe, but it's almost like the band goes into warp speed. You know, the, the sound accelerates <laughs> and the way they did this was they recorded the solo and then they layered it back in on a reel-to-reel from a sort of a standing start. So they just turn on the reel-to-reel and let it, you know, cue up. And you get this great, great sound. There's a nice making of the video clip on YouTube where Roy Thomas Baker walks through this, and I, I highly recommend it. It's such a great and well-put-together song. And, yeah, the lyrics are total chaos. And, and, and 
That's true. It's true of so many Queen songs, but that's never really bothered me. things to point out about this album that don't include bohemian rhapsody there's this sort of you know country sounding acoustic you know sailing song almost called 39 um it's by brian he sings it and it's a song about people going off on a voyage and coming back home but the crazy thing about it is if you listen closely to the lyrics it's actually about the people leaving on a voyage into space and when they come back because of einstein's theory of relativity basically all their loved ones are dead and gone and their their, their children are all grown and it's basically the plot of uh of interstellar um but set to an acoustic guitar <laughs> in 1975 i gotta admit i didn't even realize that was the plot i never quite listened that closely to the lyrics i never really do um, but I think that's the reason why the song is called 39 and not 1939 or 1839, right? Because it's the amb- ambiguity of the change of time on Earth. While they think they've gone for only a year, they've actually been gone 100 years. And it's just an incredible song. And written by Brian May because he's a, he's a super genius and a space geek. <laughs> um, so after all of that, what about Bohemian Rhapsody? Well, I don't yeah, know, we well, got a, it's not a Queen episode unless we talk about Bohemian Rhapsody. Come on. You know, it's funny. That was a song that turned me on to Queen, right? Where I said, wow, this is amazing. I got to admit, it didn't take very long for me to start skipping over the song on classic Queen. And even I got to say, even when I listen to A Night at the Opera, I basically skip the song. Um, It's so overplayed on the radio. Um, Obviously, the feats that it took to record the song and that's spelled out in the new movie and in the making of um, video that they did for A Night at the Opera. You really see how they experimented with sound, um, different speaker arrangements. Um, the, the the whole choir approach, the fact that it's basically three songs sandwiched together. Um, I mean, it's an amazing song. I just, I'm totally worn out on it. <laughs> and I don't even think it would rank in my top 25 favorite Queen songs. Wow. You know what the funny thing about Bohemian Rhapsody for me is, is that I don't really think it's aged in any particular way. I, I think that what was great about it then is great about it now when it still does just as much for me now as it used to. And what I didn't like it about then still irks me now. <laughs> the, the part that I don't like is the middle section. Um, you know, Galileo, Galileo, Figaro. It's, you know, a lot of showy sort of, you know, multi-layered vocals. I, I don't find it uh, to be very impressive. And of course, it's utter nonsense. But you know what remains at the end of the day when Bohemian Rhapsody is that beautiful opening piano part by Freddie. That's beautiful. You know, his, his first verse, you know, you know, mother just killed a man, put a gun against his head, pulled the trigger. Now he's dead. That's kind of a funny line, by the way. Um, that whole melody and the way he plays it so sensitively on the piano 
and the way sort of the whole band swells up behind him into this great ballad that that hasn't aged a day since 1975 i mean and, and if there's a reason that the sort of the myth of queen is built on the song i contend it's not because of the middle section or even the big hard rock ending i think it's because of that beautiful beautiful opening section that gets reprised finally at the end but nothing really matters mm. anyone can see nothing really matters to me and, and i think that 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 brings it home for me and that's why it remains one of the greats I mean, the lyrics of that pretty clearly are Freddie working out a lot of his sort of personal, you know, his personal situation, his situation with the sexuality, his situation with his, you know, conservative Zoroastrian parents. You get some of this in Queen One and Queen Two. You know, it's 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 right there in the lyrics of that song I mentioned, "Liar." It's in a few places. And as I understand it, the whole point about you know, Mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head, pulled the trigger, now he's dead. He's talking about sort of killing that identity mm. of his, and and sort of coming to embrace this this sort of new um, this new identity. Um, the one song, uh, I hate to transition, but if I may, the one song that we didn't really get into, but you have to point it out because it's one of their greatest hits, astonishingly, is this little song in the first side, You're My Best Friend, this sort of electric piano number written by bass player John Deacon. It's a, it's a beautiful song. Um, he wrote it for his wife. You know, John Deacon, one of the stories about this band is that John Deacon is, is by far the most normal person in the band. <laughs> He's the last one to join. You know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this later. He leaves basically when Freddie dies. He doesn't want to continue the band. He's painfully shy, but he's also extremely, extremely normal. And not just on stage. He always gets compared to John Entwistle of The Who for being the sort of steady presence on stage while everybody else is total chaos. And that's true. But the difference is that John Entwistle, you know, his li- his personal life was total chaos up until the moment he dies of a drug overdose in a Las Vegas hotel room with a prostitute. John Deacon was a totally normal person with a who loved his wife, basically lived in the same modest home their entire career, even after he made tens and tens of millions of dollars. And he writes this beautiful, beautiful little song for his wife that becomes a top 10 hit and sort of persists over time as one of their I think most prominent um, American radio hits along with Bohemian Rhapsody and Killer Queen. That song is so beautiful. In fact, gentlemen, uh, it was the song that my wife and I had our first dance to at our wedding. So that's what I think of. You're my best friend. Now I feel bad for having said something dismissive. It's okay. But I do think it's a fantastic. uh, It's an electric piano uh, played by Deacon because Freddie Mercury did not want to play. He hated the electric piano. He's like, why would you play that when you have this wonderful grand piano? So Deacon plays the electric piano, which gives really the 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 uh, the feel, I think, to uh, to the song. Kind of has a Fleetwood Mackie feel to it to me in a way, you know. 
Yeah. Lyrics yeah, are you know, very direct I, and, and, and loving. And if you've ever heard, uh, I, I heard this song with just the isolated vocals, both the, uh, you know, Freddie's parts and, of course, the, the backing vocals to the layered Roy Thomas Baker backing vocals. It's really impressive. It's, it's one of their best, I think, vocal performances as a band on a song. And, and the way it ends with those ascending riffs and those chimes to take uh, take the song out to close is just is yeah. wonderful. And, of course, now when I hear it, I think of my wonderful one. I'll say that whenever I hear I'm in love with my car, I think of my car. (laughs) (laughs) So now I feel a little bit bad for being dismissive of uh, you're my best friend. But I'll tell you, I don't feel very bad at all for being dismissive of the next Queen album, which was clearly meant as like part two of what would be like a two album cycle. You had a night at the opera. And so what comes next? Well, it's a day at the races. Again, this is treated as like one of their classic era records. I find almost nothing whatsoever to hold on to on this album. Even the the hits, the quote unquote hits on this album, don't do it for me. Uh, Tie Your Mother Down, which is the opening song seems like a kind of a, a wan imitation of earlier triumphs it seems like they're trying to do keep yourself alive again or um you know uh you know something off of say sheer heart attack and it, again it feels almost like the band has moved on since that point so it feels like you know their hearts aren't even really in it and i know that almost everyone else on the planet is a huge fan of somebody to love uh but I'm not. You know, this is a song I didn't even really know existed. I had somehow managed to get through my entire life without <laughs> hearing it on the radio or, you know, on any albums or anything like that. So I'm, I'm fairly new to it. I guess I like the chorus, you know, like the sort of operatic chorus. Can anybody help me? That has, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good hook. But the rest of that song... I don't know. It just feels like this is an album where their inspiration is almost at a complete minimum. I even think that the one they did after this, the news of the world, which usually is the one that gets kind of hammered by fans and critics alike. Um, I prefer that to a day at the races. And, and again, you know, I'm speaking as a non queen fan. So I want to hear arguments as to why I'm wrong or if I'm right, tell me why I have such good instincts. Well, now you're, you're panning of the album um, and the, and the earlier albums. I mean, that's fitting. Queen was panned by the mainstream media throughout this part of the career, and so I, you know, as a as a card carrying member of the mainstream well, Adam, media, Adam, I don't blame I, you for that. Adam, so. I didn't call them a fascist band yet. <laughs> We're going to get to that. No, so this this album, I'm, you know, it's funny you mentioned "Tie Your Mother Down" and its similarity to "Keep to Keep Yourself Alive" from the first album. And that's a, that's a song that Brian wrote even before he joined Queen, right? And so it really it comes from that same vintage of of "Keep Yourself Alive" and, and early early Queen. Um, this album, you know, it's not a it's not a favorite of mine. Queen sort of comes to the end of the line of its early approach. Um, this one, they, this is the first one they do without Roy Thomas Baker. Mm-hmm. They self produce it, um, and it's it's not great. But there are some great moments. Um, first of all, well, I should say actually, there's a lot of great moments on the second half of the album. 
right? The second side, from somebody to love um, on to the end. There's a number of non-hits on the back end of this, including one called Drowse and one called Tero Teriate, Japanese. Um, these are, I think, I think very, very nice songs. Somebody mm-hmm. to love is maybe Queen's best song. Freddie thought it was better than Bohemian Rhapsody, and, he, and he's surely right. But it might be one of the greatest songs they ever did. You know, here they do layer on those vocals, vocals for this you know, hundred voice choir effect. You know, on tape on the album, Freddie's singing it in his falsetto, and it really weakens the song. If you listen to the way they performed this from the early '80s into you know the last tour in '86, this song becomes a total showstopper because Freddie is singing with a much more high-powered voice, and it comes through. But the roots of it there are there on the album. Frankly, they should have named they should have named get into this later. They should have named the movie "Somebody to Love." Um, because it really is Freddie's signature song and a window into what Freddie is, is dealing with. the rest of the album goes and you know, i mentioned the last the last the second side there's this music hall song you know full freddy falsetto it's called good old-fashioned lover boy it's on the greatest hits album it actually is probably the, along with killer queen the best pop song that freddy does in that voice it's actually kind of catchy with um with the the layered vocals oh it's well, bad bad freddy bad oh, really? <laughs> oh, well, well so the last okay so then the last two songs then right there's this one uh the second last song is called drowse yeah, it's one. by um it, it, it's by <laughs> roger he sings it the closest thing i can compare this to if you need a, a sort of a touchstone is freebird this is like sort of a glam rock freebird um heavy heavy slide guitar by brian like all the other songs i like it's not in four four it's in six eight and so you get this sort of you know rolling waltz rhythm to it and and roger sort of chorus of rogers is singing it with that distinctive voice and then they finish with this beautiful beautiful song one of my absolute favorites by queen it's called teo teriate let us cling together it's written by brian and it's a tribute to the to basically the japanese fans that they met while touring the world on uh on, on the night of the opera tour and it's it's hard to describe it's just this beautiful soaring sort of choir song um it's it's beautiful
In this album, um, there's one other sort of Skinnered moment on the album. I have to point it out. In addition to Drowse, they do a, they do a song called White Man. It's on the second side. It's not a good song. Brian does it. It's kind of like Prophet's song from the previous album. But actually, they have this tinny electric guitar sound that I listen to it, and I hear something more like Skinnered, uh, Simple Man. Um, I mean, later they drop in with the heavy guitar and drums and layers of guitar. But it's a it's a it's sort of a, a, a gem on the second side of the album. But yeah, this was where Queen exhausts their early approach. This next album is significantly different, and thank God, because they basically had done everything they could do, and it was time for some some new ideas. I mean, the songs on A Day at the Races are are, are just kind of a weaker batch of a Night of the Opera. Uh, there are some that kind of echo each other. Uh, Tie Your Mother Down, I just want to hear the riff. I, I don't need the rest of the song. Uh, that riff is good enough to, to stand, and that's, that. okay, that, that's all I need. Uh, Somebody Love, I, I, I stand more with Adam on that. I do think it's a great song. And, and putting aside Freddie's uh, vocal performance, which is gigantic, the band plays very well. There's a really good swing to that song uh, yeah. with the piano and, and, and Roger on drums that really carries it through. And uh, uh, Drowse, I, I like, which is a Roger song that, that Adam mentioned. Uh, and You and I is a John Deacon song smack dab in the middle of the, of, the, of the album. A lot of these John Deacon songs that we'll talk about, at least I'll mention, are, are, are sort of like, you know, Jeff mentioned the songs that are kind of out there and... and, and um, Adam, of course, kind of the, the, the advertisements during the Who Sell Out and how these songs kind of function that way. John Deacon songs always, for me, tend to center the album and get everything back to where it should be. You and I is one of those songs. It's a very simple song. I think it's got a very nice melody to it. Um, and I think his sense of, you know, his sense of well, later funk, of course, but sense of rhythm and, and just how songs can be put together in, in, in a, I don't want to say a normal way, but in a, in a more normal way than some of maybe Freddie's stuff. Uh, is a good counterpoint on these albums, and I think you and I serves that well on uh, a day at the races. But uh, yeah. uh, go ahead. Tire, as I say, tie your mother down. I wanted. I just wanted to add you know, that that is a great song. It's one of the two Queen songs I would most like to hear a country band cover. Right? It just sounds like it'd be perfect for sort of a modern. Southern the old ninety seven. Yeah, old exactly. Do tie your mother down. I can hear <laughs> right. it. Oh uh, yeah, or you know, um, Shooter Jennings or something like that. Um, and then, uh, boy, they had one other. One other thing here, but I guess I lost it. It's a, it's a good album. Uh, oh, it's somebody to love. You know, at the tribute concert after Freddie dies, and they have this parade of singers coming through um, to sort of sing different Queen songs. George, one of the songs George Michael does is somebody to love, and it is far and away the showstopper mm-hmm. of the concert. You know, at the time, maybe the the Elton John, Axl Rose, Bohemian Rhapsody duet might have been the showstopper. But 25 years later, I think without a doubt, George Michael and that song is what really brings the house down at the concert for life and for good reason. So we move on to News of the World. Uh, This is an album that there are only two songs on it that anybody who isn't a huge hardcore Queen fan is going to know. Uh, But the flip side of that is that if you're not a huge hardcore Queen fan, these are probably the only two songs that you know. Because I think it's literally true that every single person on the planet, including like peasants in rural China, are aware of We Will Rock You <laughs> and We Are the Champions, which is the opening one-two salvo of this album. And I will just start talking about News of the World by saying this. I know I'm supposed to dislike these songs. I know I'm supposed to say, oh, they're overplayed. You've heard them on the radio so many times. You hear people pounding the bleachers at basketball games singing it. It's just a hack cliche. It's a fascist tune, as Dave Marsh infamously said when he was reviewing (laughs) jazz the next year. Uh, I don't care. 
They're great. We Will Rock You is a totally different style of Queen music than anything they had done up until this point. First of all, it's blessedly short. It's like a minute and a half. It says exactly what it needs to say. You know, there's no real guitar solo. Even that ending bit that Brian May comes in with doesn't feel like a guitar solo per se. He just sings his verses. He gets out. It is so bare bones. It is so skeletal. And then, you know, We Are the Champions is not only just a beautiful song, despite, again, the fact that it's used, you know, basically at the end of every, you know, major league <laughs> sporting contest in the world but uh there's something about that that makes me me feel like it's like the quintessential freddie mercury theme song that there's just something about his the attitude there where it's like you know uh you know but it's been no bed of roses no pleasure cruise you know as i was at the line is i consider it a challenge before the whole human race and i ain't gonna lose and he just says it in that very dramatic broadway kind of voice and, and then the band comes you know screaming in and we go on 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 and it's it's the, it's Queen in just you know five seconds. You have the entire basic, you know, idea of what Queen stood for and what Freddie Mercury's public and performing persona stood for. And I think it's actually you know a triumph even after all these years. It's it's one of the rare super hits by any band of of this era that I've not gotten tired of yet. I've taken my bows and my curtain calls. You brought me. And fortune and everything that goes with it I thank you all But it's been no bed of roses No pleasure cruise I consider it a challenge say the same thing about the rest of this album but again for me it's one of these records where it's such a precipitous drop off from the famous songs to the sort of album tracks mm. that this is what kind of sours my view of queen when people say that they're they're an all-time great band i'm like no have you listened to the album tracks the only one i would like to make an argument for and i think actually i think scott might be a fan of this one too i'm not sure um i remember him saying something about it on twitter lately I, or uh, there's a song on side two that nobody ever talks about a brian may song called it's late yes mm-hmm. okay that again just random hidden i don't know if it was ever performed live nobody ever talks about it hidden gem just you know first time really actually when i was listening to these albums i was like well now that's a song i had never heard of before that i think is a masterpiece i really love it's late and seems like uh adam agrees with me as well oh absolutely it's late is the high point of the album beyond the the obviously the, the main the big two hits will rock you we're the champions you know it starts off with a sort of slow almost distant sounding uh electric guitar and they come in with sort of a blues riff and then by the end the song is huge and it, it takes off on this, you know, this jam at the end where you have Brian May using a two-finger tapping technique, mm-hmm. you know, even long before, not long before, but before Eddie Van Halen makes it huge. Um, I think he, I think 77, is that before Van Halen won? Same, it's right around the same, same time. Same year, but this came out first. So yeah, and so you have Brian first. May beating Eddie Van Halen to the punch on, on the two-finger tapping technique. Ah, Steve Hackett beat them both. <laughs> <laughs> Down, yeah. Now you tell me I'll leave it, and I just can't believe 
you know, tri- by the way, trivia, May and, and, and uh, Eddie Van Halen ended up recording an album together in the early 80s um, while Queen's on hiatus that basically nobody knows about. Um, but So I love this album. If there's one album, if, if somebody said to me, hey, Adam, what Queen album should I buy after the Greatest Hits packages? This is probably one of the two albums, top two albums I'd recommend to them. I think the album tracks, there's a couple of clunkers, but I think by and large, the album tracks here are extremely strong. Um, really quick on We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions. Uh, yeah, after Queen tours a day at the races, Brian and the story goes that Brian and Freddie start to pick up on the fact that the crowd is really getting into the songs from a day at the races and everything else and singing them back. And it's a little annoying for the guys on stage, but they start to realize that something kind of special is happening at the concerts. And so they create uh, these songs to really, really bring the audience in in the way that they tried to do earlier with uh, In the Lap of the Gods. And the story of how Brian, Brian had a blog once where he described just the mechanics of getting We Will Rock You recorded and trying to replicate that floorboard sound. And he says, you know, at one point, he says, you know, you, you, you work with all these delay machines and you start mapping out the echoes. And he says in the, the quote, he says, you know, we related to each other in length with prime numbers so there would not be any discernible echo in the way that they, they, they the detail they go in to, to make this sound so authentic. It's just a, an, an amazing song. Buddy, you're an old man, poor man, pleading with your eyes, gonna make you zombie someday. You got mud on your face, big disgrace. Somebody better put your bag into your place. the album is great sheer heart attack the name of the third album they had the song laying around they finally finish um it's like punk right they're recording this in a studio in london next to the sex pistols and people hear the song and assume that it's queen just kind of copying the the, the punk sound but no they had this years earlier along with stone cold crazy yeah i mean stone um, cold crazy i still can't quite get over how futuristic that song yeah. sounds mm-hmm. that sounds yeah. like a song from the 1980s from america not from queen yeah same same with sheer heart attack right it, it comes out in 77 written 73 74 um, you get that same song from the future. You know, there's a couple of ballads in there that are really good. One by Brian uh, May on, on vocals and piano called All Dead, All Dead. Um, uh, Spread Your Wings, another really beautiful John Deacon song with John on, on piano. Um, but yeah, the, the real key to this album, my favorite song on it by far is It's Late. One last thing about the album cover. The album cover is this really far out uh, weird <laughs> robot sort of drawing you know it's this it's this futuristic sci-fi robot holding a couple of members of queen sort of dead and bleeding in his hand and it's it's from this artist frank kelly freas um who's actually reworking something he had done years earlier for the sci-fi magazine astounding science fiction they, they found this cover this picture and they wanted to adapt it for their cover and they asked the artist and he listens to queen to make sure he doesn't hate the band and then he decides he likes the band so he adapts the uh, his his artwork for this crazy crazy cover, and if you're a Family Guy fan, you have to go find the right. the, the vignette from Family <laughs> Guy where they they riff off of this because um, Seth MacFarlane, the creator of Family Guy, he as a child was terrified of this album cover, mm-hmm. and so on Family Guy, and this is floating around on YouTube, is this hilarious four minute skit where Brian the dog just tortures Stewie, who's terrified. <laughs> Of this album cover, he says, "Why does the al- Why does the robot look sad? He's already destroyed the world. Why is he sad?" And it's just a, a hilarious 
uh, a hilarious uh, clip. But the, the key to this album is after Day of the Races and everything else, they strip everything back as far down as they can, all the way down to the studs, and they're recording it next to the Sex Pistols. And there's this great story of Sid Vicious wandering into the studio at one point, sort of mocking Freddie Mercury says something like, so Freddie, have you succeeded in bringing ballet to the masses yet? And Freddie's answer is something like, well, Simon Ferocious, we do the best we can. And then he starts flicking the pins on Sid's jacket and says, you know, so what are you going to do about it? And Sid Vicious <laughs> backs down from, you know, Freddie probably wearing a unitard or something at that point. Um, and then they throw him out of the studio. And this is just a great album. <laughs> I uh, um, I I think the front half is good. I think the back half does not hold together very well outside of its late, uh, which you guys have have talked about already. Uh, But the front half has has some pretty good stuff. Uh, You know, one song I don't like though is "Sheer Heart Attack." It it feels it feels labored to me. It feels like punk for punk's sake. Where um, Stone Cold Crazy is just so good. You know, Metallica covered it and and loved it, and that's actually the first time I think I heard it was the Metallica cover of Stone Cold Crazy. That feels fresh and and original. Uh, "Sheer Heart Attack" feels like I I know Adam said they were kind of people thought they were copying. It's just the way it sounds. It just sounds like it's punk for punk's sake. But uh, it also feels like a song that they didn't finish. for a reason back when they had it you know like <laughs> you know that, that's why they didn't bother to you know you know finally write the back half of the song it's because it wasn't as good as the rest of the stuff on those sessions well, they were just so busy recording all those hits on sheer heart attack the album you know they just didn't have time to finish it we, we mentioned a couple of times queen uh, music in, in movies and uh um you know i i must admit that i think what a, it had to be one of my first exposures to We Are the Champions, yeah. sadly, was at the very end of Revenge of the Nerds, uh, after the nerds, you know, take over the pep rally and, 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 and rally the nerds to their, to their side, to their cause, this We Are the Champions plays. And I think that's one of my first exposures to the song. Uh, it's better than that makes it sound. I mean, it's better than just being used in Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, Spread Your Wings, another Deacon track that uh, I think Adam mentioned previously. That's another just really good song, uh, story song about Sammy who's at a dead-end job. And, of course, the lyrics are encouraging him to spread his wings and escape and, and try something new. That's one that does not, you know, doesn't have the backing vocals, doesn't have that big, you know, the, the wall of, 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 of voices, the choir. It's not on there. It's a very fr- straightforward John Deacon song. His like fight from the inside too which is a taylor song that he wrote and and sang uh but that second half of the album man uh i I don't like get down make love i don't like sleeping on the sidewalk very much and outside of it's late the first half of news of the world i think is all you really need yeah Yeah, by the way sleeping on the sidewalk the only song the queen ever recorded in one take did not know that now you do the more you know. The more you know. We move on. And I think actually this is where it gets interesting and good. Um, I know that wasn't good before, but interesting and better. Uh, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Adam White with us today talking Queen. You can find him on Twitter at AdamJWhiteDC. Uh, jazz is next in, in 1978. 
This is uh, one that, uh, to me, is a, it's a little sleazier. It's a little dirtier. It's a little heavier, but at the same time, is, is more fun. Um, this is really a good album. Jazz, and I think it's underrated in, in the Queen canon. Roy Thomas Baker comes back to produce some of this. And, you know, you have a double-A-sided single, Fat Bottom Girls, and Bicycle Race. Um, and I, I must say, I like both of those songs, except with the exception. The radio edit for Fat Bottom Girls sucks. If you've heard Fat Bottom Girls on the radio, there's a decent chance it's the radio edit in which they chop off uh, May's guitar intro. Then they chop down that kind of guitar bridge after that first verse. Uh, it is so much better on the album. Bottom girls and then bicycle race with throwing those little you know the topical uh, lyrics um, you know never like Star Wars and, and, and those sorts of things. I I'm a sucker for the bike bell solo. I must say I like the on your mark get set go uh, into the uh, into the kind of not a cappella but the you know the voice portion of that song. It's a thrilling bicycle ride of a song. I mean really it takes you from start to finish. I like that one quite a bit. Dead on time. It's a Brian May track that uh, it might be my favorite one of the album. Dead on Time is a great, great track. It reminds me of Keep Yourself Alive, some of the early Brian May stuff. There's a thunderbolt at the very end of the song, which is an actual real thunderbolt recorded during a, a terrible uh, thunderstorm. And then Freddie Mercury screaming, you're dead. It's a great way uh, to end Dead on Time. And uh, I'll just mention, and then let's let someone else pick up with Don't Stop Me Now. Uh, I had mentioned earlier, that's kind of what got me back into Queen, seeing it in Shaun of the Dead. Um, but it's, uh, you know, Freddie Mercury's sex drive and libido, basically. He's a sex machine ready to reload. Mr. And, uh, Fahrenheit. Yes. Uh, Stephen Hyden uh, had a piece, I think, over at Grantland, uh, looking at Queen's albums. And he said, you know, the, the athleticism of Mercury's vocal here is what makes it so good. The gymnastics he performs vocally is just amazing. Fast and precise. Uh, the song has a manic nature to it. Uh, I really, really like Don't Stop Me Now, though I think people kind of hear it, as Stephen mentioned, as kind of a get-up-and-go kind of song when it's really just a song about Freddie Mercury, you know, having fun in bed, uh, by and large. <laughs> uh, so I, I think jazz is, is really underrated in the Queen uh, catalog, and I like it better than any of the previous three albums, quite frankly, The Day of the Races and Night of the Opera and even uh, News of the World. I think jazz is superior to all three of those. 
yeah, I'd like to finally congratulate Queen on on making a good <laughs> album again because this is the first time they've made one in yeah, as I said, since Sheer Heart Attack. Uh, suddenly, they seem to have found a way to edit themselves and to to consolidate their ideas. I don't think there's a bad song on this record. I think maybe the closest might be Jealousy, which I think is just sort of neither here nor there. It's not that great. Even the one that I thought I didn't like, didn't think I liked Mustafa. Uh, at first, um, but you know, you listen to that enough times, and, and you know, by God, that that stupid fake Muezzin's call just kind of sinks into your skin, and you end up, you know, singing it along with him, even though it's complete nonsense gobbledygook. Like I think it's sung in like five different languages or something like that, only one of which I understand. Um, but uh, the thing about um, jazz is that. Again, this is one for the first time where almost all of the tracks that aren't famous. Bicycle Race, actually, you know, I, I said earlier that my first experience with Queen was the classic Queen compilation, Bohemian Rhapsody. But, you know, now I'm thinking about it. I have a recovered memory, Scott. I actually <laughs> remember that it was Bicycle Race. And it was when I was in fourth grade and we were sitting around at my friend Harold Hawkins's house after school on a half day. And he had a copy of Queen's Greatest Hits. And he just loved to play this song Bicycle Race over and over again. And even when I was nine years old, nine-year-old Jeff still had the distinct memory of thinking, man, you know, that is a really silly song. That is a really <laughs> stupid song, but I just can't get it out of my head. Why does this man want to continually ride his bicycle? Why does he want to ride his bike? And Why ride it he where he likes. Yeah, ride it where he likes. <laughs> I didn't understand any of the references to Star Wars or Jaws or all the cultural stuff of the moment. You know, I was listening to it. It would have been 1989, so why would I have known? But uh, I just remember that that song just gets stuck in your head, and it seemed like silly. It almost seemed like the kind of same stuff you'd hear on Sesame Street, like like fun children's music. <laughs> And then, of course, you know, you contrast that with Don't Stop Me Now, a song about, you know, gay hedonism and popping amels <laughs> in uh, the New York, you know, underground club scene. And this is an album of contrasts. Uh, the one thing I want to say is that I think secretly, the I don't know if it's the best song on this album, but it's actually my, if you had to say, what's one secret underrated Queen album track? It's Late would be one that I mentioned off of News of the World. But the other one is another Brian May song. I don't understand why no one talks about leaving home ain't easy which is sandwiched in the middle of the second half of the song album freddie doesn't sing it i don't even know if freddie even appears on it it's a, it might as well be a brian brian may solo song but it's a magnificent piece it actually has the kinds of melodic and harmonic compositional traits that i was expecting to hear so much more of from classic era queen and that i was kind of frustrated that i wasn't finding and that here it is and on a forgotten song that no one ever talks about 
last thing I want to say about jazz, which I will say is one of their two greatest albums, I would argue, uh, is that even, again, the minor stuff is not only pretty fun, but points the way ahead. You know, fun it, mm-hmm. stupid song, but boy, if you can't hear another one bites the dust, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, like all the disco stuff they'd be getting up to in, in, in preceding years coming out of that song with that funk disco vibe, I, I, I don't know, is that a Deacon track or is that a Roger Taylor That's track? That's a Taylor, uh, Taylor track. It's Taylor? Okay, yep. well, yeah, I guess that makes sense given that it's so drum-based. But yeah, you know what? You know, for a song that's just basically a groove, that's a groove I'm really interested in listening to. Suddenly these guys found out how to make a good album. So I think it's ironic that this is the one that got savaged by Rolling Stone in 1978 in that famous Dave Marsh review where uh, he called them the world's first truly fascist rock band. I was like, you know, you know, they finally put this effort and they come out with a good album and this is how you reward them. <laughs> Life just isn't fair sometimes. So for me, for me, Pete Queen really starts with the previous album, News of the World, and it continues through 82. Um, this album, I love. I think it's great. Now, I actually think that of what, the, the 13 songs in this album, there's about six clunkers on it for me that I just habitually skip. That opening track, Mustafa, which is that you know blur of English and Arabic and Persian. Um, I hate it. I wish they hadn't opened the album with it. I wish they would have just started with Fat Bottom Girls. Jealousy, the song that Jeff already said he doesn't like. It's fitting he doesn't like it because it's sort of the last, the last gasp of the, the early Freddie Falsetto songs, um, and it's it's just it's I, I dislike it. The John Deacon palate cleanser. If you can't beat them, I don't like any of the John Deacon palate cleansers. I like some of the, the hits like Spread Your Wings and and um, and and another one bites the dust and so on. But but what you were Scott describing earlier about those those John Deacon transition songs, mm-hmm. I think they all sound the same, and I dislike them. They remind me of the one time in the Jimi Hendrix Experience where Jimmy lets uh, what's the, the, the Noel um, who's the bass player in Jimi Hendrix Experience Noel of Redding, Noel Can- yeah, not Noel Canning. That's a Supreme Court case. Noel Redding, <laughs> where he gets sort of a song on the third on, on Electric Ladyland. Noel Canning doing yeah. doing Little Miss Strange off of right. Electric Ladyland. Right. No, it's it's, it's just terrible terrible song. She's so fine that Noel Noel Redding did. I hated that. And John Deacon's palate cleansers all sound like that. I don't like. I mean, Dead on Time is Adam, Dead on. Adam, Adam, sorry. Yeah. Those, are both, those are both good songs. Sorry. <laughs> well, you know what else? I, I also don't like Living Home Made Easy. I have to admit, your favorite song on the album. Um, there's a neat sort of vocal trick in the middle where they, they, they start speeding up on tape Brian May's vocals. And it's sort of, it's clever, but I just don't like the song. For me, you know, the hits on the song are great. Fat Bottom Girls, you know, we're, another effort where Brian is playing in drop D tuning for that deeper, broader sound. Um, this is that's the second of the two Queen songs I really wish to get covered by a country band, um, like a southern rock band. Bicycle Race is great. Um, uh, the last song on the album, sung by Roger, called "More of That Jazz." It's sort of this pulsing drum and bass with a fuzzy guitar riff on top of it, um, and then they start splicing in clips from throughout the album um, into that last song. Um, I think that's great. For me, my favorite moment on the album is right in the middle. It's this song called Let Me Entertain You. It's by far my favorite Queen song, um, at least mm. in its live versions. And I'll get back to that. I mean, as we were sort of joking beforehand. This is kind of like Queen's version of Hey, Hey, We're the Monkeys, where they actually walk through. Hello, here we're, you know, we're Queen. Here's what we do. Here's our manager, Skittles. Uh, that's his name. You know, our, you know, they, they name drop Electra and EMI, their record labels. Um but the song itself, the music itself, it's everything that I love about Queen. You have this great interplay between Brian's guitar licks and, and Freddie's vocals, and they really play it up on stage, too, where they're going back and forth between the two of them. And the drum and bass combination on this is really, really great. 
Um, but again, the live album, the song is slightly too slow. Where they really perfect it is on the, the studio album. It's too slow. They perfect it on the live album that comes out the next year called Live Killers, um, which I, is a great, great live album. It's like Queen's Frampton Comes Alive, where you hear Queen doing not just their latest album, but a lot of their early stuff. But now they've perfected that sound. They've tightened it up. They've sped up the songs. They open a concert with a fast sort of rock version like a like a sped up rock version guitar based version of we will rock you Mm -hmm. and then they go right into let me entertain you and it is it is like i said peak queen these concerts because they're playing in these arenas and it's like a powder keg ready to explode and the videos of the band doing this song in particular is just great they're all in their element there's great clips of john deacon just smiling as he's playing back and forth with uh, against the drums it's a it's by far my favorite Queen song uh, in the live version. We said Roy Thomas Baker returns to produce this album. The other big change, though, is what they leave behind. You know, they leave London and they go down to France to record this album. For the rest of their career, they're largely recording outside of England, like all the other rock and roll tax exiles. Um, but, But getting out of that comfort zone of London and going to France before they move on to Germany and Switzerland and Los Angeles to record albums, I think makes a huge difference, not just by inspiring the bicycle race song, allegedly, but I think just in general, getting them out of England and having them record and live together uh, is is the key to this album. By the way, I remember when I was a, a, a young man in high school, I had a book that I enjoyed reading and discussing with my friends called The 50 Worst Albums Ever Released. And uh, uh, very highly featured on yes, that was yes. Live Killers. That's right. The Queen Live album that you just praised so highly <laughs> was mentioned as one of the worst records ever made. Um, I finally got around to listening to it as we were doing this project. I don't think it's one of the worst albums ever made by a long shot. I don't really think it's a great live album either. And I will say this, that the one thing that does rankle with me is uh, the Bohemian Rhapsody performance, which is just so annoying. Because what they do is they literally leave stage and they just have the sound system play the tape of the whole middle section, you know, the Galileo, Galileo, Figaro part. Um, so they can then come back on later and do the big rocking ending because there's no way they can recreate it on stage. And I'm like, listen, buddy, if you can't come up with a creative way to edit that song and uh, you know, not you know, embarrass yourself by literally walking off to do a smoke break and bump a line, I, I would appreciate it because it seems come almost like an insult to the audience. Uh, I, I still don't understand why people hate that album so much, though, because it seems like a lot of people do. I read that same book, by the way, Jeff. I remember that. Yeah, self-portrait at number one, I yes, believe. No, no, yes. and having fun with Elvis on stage is number one. Right. Self-portrait at number two. <laughs> I, I think it. I think it would have been a greater insult to the fans to actually try to do a sort of cut-rate recreation of the the Bohemian Rhapsody 
uh, opera section on stage. It just, it never would have worked. You know, the only thing worse than not performing the opera of Bohemian Rhapsody live on stage would be actually performing it live on stage. And so I, I, I you know, maybe they just shouldn't have done the song on stage at all. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm not a huge Bohemian Rhapsody fan myself, but um, I, it makes ter- perfect sense why they did what they did. So after jazz, we get uh, well, I mean, a little break until uh, 1980, and uh, and and the game is the very next album from uh, Queen. It, this is their, I believe, their best-selling album of all time. I believe, well, outside of the greatest hits collections, went multi-platinum in the U.S. and had uh, two number one hits on it. Um, and I gotta say, I don't know, I I don't know, you know, intricate, uh, you know, Queen mega fan thoughts. I think the first half of the game, I think the first half of the game, side one is the best side of music in Queen's career. Uh, I think side one of the game is, is nearly perfect. Uh, it, it features, of course, Another One Bites the Dust, uh, which was just a massive, massive hit in, in 1980. Fifteen weeks in the top ten, uh, kind of lifting a bass line from good times, uh, and then building around that, John Deacon brings the, uh, the, the funk feel to, uh, to Another One Bites the Dust. His, his song, he wrote it. Um, no... There, there are no synthesizers on this song, though it, though it sounds like there should be. Anything you hear on Another One Bites the Dust that, that is synth-esque is, you know, take playback, reverse. There's some harmonizer use, but it's all, you know, actually performed. Nothing is, nothing is done on a synthesizer on Another One Bites the Dust, uh, which is a fantastic song. And it's one of the certainly Queen's best songs. It was actually originally uh, used in place of Eye of the Tiger in Rocky Three. Uh, and then they, they got Survivor to write uh, Eye of the Tiger specifically for the movie. But there's a there's a rough cut, something out there, where Another One Bites the Dust plays over that opening montage in Rocky Three, as opposed to uh, Survivor. And the other big, big, big song on side one is Crazy Little Thing Called Love. Um, I want to just, again, point to John Deacon in Crazy Little Thing Called Love, because, yeah, it's, you know, you got the, that acoustic guitar that, that kicks things off and Freddie's vocal performance and Brian May's solo, but Deacon's bass, to me, makes Crazy Little Thing Called Love. It is just a great, great performance. In between those tracks, the first one, Play the Game, which I think is one of the more underrated Queen songs. I really like Play the, Play the Game. This is the first album where Queen did use synthesizers, and they announced their presence in the opening seconds of the album, those synth sounds to start off Play the Game. Uh, I, I love Brian's guitar solo with that drum kind of building up behind it. Da 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 Attack, another funky bass line, just a great groove from Roger Taylor on the drums. Minimal lyrics. You really pay attention to what they're doing musically on Dragon Attack, and I think it's an underrated song as well. And even uh, Need Your Lovin' Tonight, which is another Deacon song. It's a palate cleanser. It's a pretty straight-ahead rock song. But I think I think side one of the game is just about as good as Queen gets. I mean, if you made me choose, yeah, I'd say side one of the game is the best side of music. It's the perfect side of music in the Queen catalog, I think. Uh, side two, not as good. Uh, Brian May has a couple of gems toward the end. Uh, I think Sail Away Sweet Sister is very, very good. Reminiscent of the, kind of the bombast of that 70s work. And then uh, Save Me. 
um, which really is reminiscent of some of their big 70s stuff. It's just so over the top in virtually every way. The, the, the massive, massive chorus, um, the massive production on it, the, the kind of a loud, soft dynamic to, to the song as well. I like both those Brian May songs toward the end. Um, some of the second side can't hold up to the first side, but I really, really like the game. Uh, well, you're not, a big, you're not a big fan of Don't Try Suicide, Scott? I am not a big fan of Don't Try yeah, Suicide. Yeah, that's a bit on the nose as a title, <laughs> isn't it? You know, it's it's like uh, you know, uh, Don't Drink and Drive, isn't it? Or Don't Drive Drunk by Stevie Wonder. That, that's always <laughs> what it reminds me of from the same era. And I was like, you know, you know, I guess we're trying to we're, we're, we're kind of you know stabbing a little bit too hard at the you know, socially conscious music here. It well, isn't you know, quite it's, working. It's the flip side of that. That masking and another one bites the dust, which says, you know, try marijuana, smoke marijuana. marijuana. So they had to, they had to balance that in some way. Yeah, it was actually, it's funny, the same thing that occurred to me is like maybe the consciousness <laughs> got to them after perverting the years of, of, of the youth of America by, by hiding. <laughs> this is, for those who don't know, the, like, the, uh, you know, there's a fundamentalist, uh, you know, Christian kind of conspiracy theory that rock stars were hiding hidden messages <laughs> in their music, satanic messages or evil messages by, uh, you know, by backmasking them. In other words, if you played the record backwards on a turntable, ran it backwards, you'd find the secret secret message and uh pink floyd actually even made fun of this on one of their albums i think it was the wall or something like that where they did did that just to sort of mess with the people who were claiming this Mm -hmm. but for queen the the idea is that they alleged that queen had taken if you listen to another one bites the dust backwards you'll hear freddie mercury saying you know start to smoke marijuana or fun to smoke (laughs) marijuana or something like that and i think you can even go to the wikipedia page and hear the song fragment played backwards so you can judge for yourselves uh but i suspect that a band that had already kind of embraced gay camp in its utmost over the years, you know, and Freddie's walking around wearing, you know, leather chaps, you know, uh, one of those, you know, butch motorcycle caps and, uh, you know, gold chains with an open bare chest on stage, you know, didn't really need feel the need to sort of hide, you know, whatever kind of, you know, outre or, uh, you know, scandalous the- lyrical themes that they were going to use. Uh, my thoughts on the game, by the way, just quickly, I, I think it's a fine album. Uh, I think Scott really got to most of what I was going to say about it. I think the thing that's most notable for me is how different it is from everything that they had done before. I think mm-hmm. you're fun and on jazz obviously points the way towards where they'd be going on the game. Um, uh, but, you know, as I, I, I'm aware I read, you know, the literature and people you are know, saying, well, you know, I, I'm also a big Queen fan. But they really lost me with this one. I, you know, this is when they sold out. I don't like their pop moves. I couldn't care less about any of that. As somebody who was never a Queen fan, never wedded to any particular sound and, in fact, have made – you know, apparent at great length here on the show. I did not like their classic era sound at all. Uh, it's fun to hear them doing these funk exercises, do this more dance oriented stuff. The sort of you know, or stripped down minimals and like crazy little thing called love, which is basically a, a rockabilly song mm-hmm. by any other name. Fantastic record. Second side isn't as good as the first, sure, but uh, this is good. It's not quite as good as what they were about to do in the next year, in my opinion, though. Adam? Yeah, the, I mean, yeah, the, just the sheer change from 
from their old sound to this one is evident from the opening moments of the album. You know, they go their entire career up to this point, you know, stressing the fact that they never use synthesizers. What's the first thing you hear on this album, <laughs> right, is the synthesizer sound that opens up, play the game, um, the sort of the raining down of synthesizers before they move into guitar. Um, I love this album. I think this might be my favorite Queen album. The first two songs I absolutely, absolutely love. Play the Game is great. So I think one of you mentioned you know, so much of this album, they really play with, with, with sound dynamics and going from loud to, to soft and back again. They do it on Play the Game. They do it on Sail Away Sweet Sister, mm-hmm. the, the set closer, uh, Save Me. They really play that up to, to great effect. I think, you know, I love albums that start with a great opener. As I left Queen behind, I started listening more to bands like uh, Oasis and your favorite, Radiohead. Um, you know, I love songs like Airbag from Radiohead and Hello that really open up an album. And for Queen, the game, you know, play the game is a great opener. But my favorite song on the album is the second one, Dragon Attack. I mean, it's a stupid name, but it's a great <laughs> song. It's just this sort of funky bass and drums. John Deacon really takes over. It's a Brian May song, but John Deacon really takes over. Um, the live performances of this are absolutely, absolutely great. reflects the fact that here they move on to Munich and they move on to a new producer, Reinhold Mack, mm-hmm. whose name gets name dropped in the middle of, of, of Dragon Attack. Um, uh, and the sound really is influenced by the scene in Munich and, and funk and dance and obviously everything that Freddie's getting into. Um, from there, another one bites the dust, obviously. I guess this is their biggest hit. And again, it's written by the bass player of all people. Um, you know, the story goes that Michael Jackson, who was a big Queen fan and would see them in L.A., he was really urging Freddie and the band to try something in this direction. And then when they did record the song under the one bites the dust, Michael Jackson was really pushing for it to be a single. Um, crazy little thing called love seems odd to fans who you know hear the greatest hits collection and think, well, this song sounds a bit out of place, the rockabilly thing. The Queen had, that had always been part of their of their live show it would be throughout their entire career from the beginning to the end where they would do songs. Didn't like, they used um, to do like a version of Jailhouse Rock? Or they did Jailhouse the Rock? They do Big Spender. They did a lot of those songs from the first tour to the last. It was a constant presence in in their sets. And so, crazy little thing called love, which Freddie allegedly wrote in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> in 15 minutes uh, is is it really of a piece with that part of their sound and their influence. What I love about that song is how Brian, who you know so much of his song is defined by that red special guitar that he made. In this song, he, he manages to play three guitars, right? He starts off with an acoustic in the background on top of Freddie's um, rhythm guitar, kind of rare for Queen, but Freddie on rhythm guitar. And then in the middle, there's this little solo that 
live Brian May would do with a, with a Fender Telecaster. I can't remember what Fender he uses on on the album. Not a not a not it's not a Strat, um, but it's I can't remember. And then at the end, he sort of you know tears things wide open with his own red special guitar. But you can see this. There's a clip of them doing it on Saturday Night Live. They did Saturday Night Live for this album. It wasn't a great performance. Um, Freddie had blown out his voice, you know, partying. Uh, but you see how they do this on stage and Brian switching between guitars. Um, the second half of the album is definitely weaker. Don't Try Suicide. That was, a, was kind of a head-scratcher throughout Queen's career. Freddie, over and over again, has these totally solipsistic songs about death and suicide. There's this one. Later, they do Keep Passing the Open Windows. On Hot Space, he does a tribute to John Lennon called Life is Real. And it's mm-hmm. just total total nonsense and trash. Um, but the last song on the album, Freddie's uh, Save Me, is beautiful, beautiful. Starts you know with quiet piano, ends with huge drums and guitar solos. And when you listen to a song like Save Me and Play the Game, you really – and then you play it against the early albums, you hear just the full difference in how Freddie is approaching songs with his voice. If he had done Save Me or Play the Game on the first album, the vocals would have been very weak, very sort of killer queen falsetto. When he's doing a falsetto or a higher voice on this album, it's not as thin. It's mm-hmm. much more powerful, and it becomes a real key to this album. So, I, you know th- – a classic example of what a political beats episode is like would be if we devoted the most time on our show to discussing the most important album in this band's discography, which is the Flash Gordon soundtrack. <laughs> um, actually, you know, this is obviously the major footnote of Queen's career. Uh, people treat it as a joke. The movie itself was you know, widely panned when it was first released. I kind of like it. It's become a cult classic for a lot of folks, especially sci-fi fans. Um, and uh, the soundtrack that Queen did for it is also treated similarly as like something embarrassing. But I- I'm going to tell you, as a guy whose main objections a lot of the time to Queen are Freddie's vocals, the sort of the big vocal hits, all those, you know, the, the, the sort of production ticks that you associate with the band, an instrumental version of Queen where all four members are still writing and contributing songs actually is pretty appealing and i like this album i would never say like oh yeah you got to hear the flash gordon soundtrack if you want to know what queen's about but you know there's good music on this record they have the recurring sort of flash theme you know that i assume it's freddie who came up with it you know that 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 pounding piano bass line dun 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 uh, that goes throughout the album and then freddie himself gave away i think would have been a great song if they had developed it with lyrics called football fight there's some good stuff on this record. No one's ever going to make a, a big pitch for Flash Gordon as being you know, a great record. But I, I guess I'm the guy who's making the pitch that it's worth listening to, particularly if you're already a fan of this band, which ironically, I'm not. The uh, I actually like the movie, I mean, for, for what it is. And the soundtrack, I'll tell you what, I can't tell you the last time I actually, well, that's not true. I think I saw it a couple of years ago. I made my wife watch it, and she has not forgiven me yet. But um, previous to that, it was forever. And yet I, I listened to the soundtrack again in, in uh, prep for the show, and I could I can pinpoint every single scene where that music comes in. It's perfectly scored for that film. It's a perfect marriage of, 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 of audio and visual, and it's not for everyone. And it's not even a great album. As Jeff mentioned, it's, I mean, a lot of these things are 50 seconds, a minute 10, a minute 20. But the Flash theme, which has just uh, been resurrected for a, 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 a cell phone ad, is pretty fun. Uh, football fight, yeah. Uh, battle theme is a great Brian May hard, hard rock song. Um, there's a bunch of things in here that are just neat to listen to. It, it might not be worth paying for, but, you know, if, if you've seen the movie or want to just hear something different. I, the entire album is available on YouTube on yeah, Queen's official I mean, channel, man. So there's no guilt. Go find it there, man. Not a problem. 
Well, you get what you pay for, honestly, <laughs> if you watch it on YouTube. It's, I think it's fitting, Jeff, that this is your maybe your favorite Queen album because it's not so much that I, I didn't ha- say that, Adam. Come on. It was, it was, it was, it was you, you actually backmasked it. I could hear it when I played your, your, your comments backwards. Um, no, this, it's not so much that I hate this album. I just refuse to acknowledge that it exists. Um, obviously, the Flash Gordon theme song is on the Greatest Hits album, and I hate it all except for the moment where they, you know, they do the clips of the, the movie. Um, the, 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 the um the movie script and yeah. there's that one line where the girl from the movie says flash flash i love you but we only have 14 hours to save the earth <laughs> i do chuckle at that but beyond that i refuse to acknowledge anything about this album or the project it's not even the best movie soundtrack the queen ever did um there's a they did one later which we'll get to which is far better than this this is a, an utterly forgettable and uh, album and in fact i've already forgotten it Okay. When I said earlier that I thought the game was a good album, but the most more interesting thing that they did would come immediately afterward, I was not actually referring to the Flash Gordon soundtrack. What I was referring to is a song that I consider to be, after all these years, the greatest true 50-50 artistic collaboration in the history of rock music and that's funny because as you know i've already emphasized i'm not a huge fan of queen but i am a huge fan of david bowie and i am an immense fan of under pressure which is a song that you know unfortunately was first introduced to me by uh, uh mr vanilla ice mr was it robert van winkle thank you mr van winkle for uh, ice ice baby then I went back and I found out that that riff had been taken from this other song and that this other song was one of the most magical pieces of music to ever emerge out of the early 80s. And ironically, it's kind of was like the cap to David Bowie's true amazing run of artistic greatness that I think began in the mid-70s and ended with Under Pressure. And it wasn't the end of Queens, interestingly enough. I think they went on to do a lot of very good work in the 80s and maybe even better work than they did in the 70s. But what I find most interesting about Under Pressure is despite the fact that it has so many iconic moments, has you know the, that bass line, the little Chinese piano thing that goes, you know, the, the finger snaps, the hand claps, that fantastic freak-out ending um, – is that neither Bowie nor Queen seem to really ever have that much good to say about it when they talked about it. You see the interviews that they give about the song. They're like, yeah, you know, it's just kind of a jam session. Yeah, we had a lot of arguments about the mixing. You know, you know I guess it's okay for what it was, but, uh, you know, I don't really think it's that fantastic. Uh, I've never been more happy to say that they were completely wrong about that song. And I think they all eventually realized it as well. Very few pieces of music have grown into their greatness in quite the same way as under pressure and every time i hear freddie singing at the end of that song you know why can't we give love have one more chance and then bowie comes back in and says because love's such an old-fashioned word i still get goosebumps to this day i can listen to it over and over again by god there's there's a really good argument to make that it isn't just queen's best song it's one of bowie's best songs as well um which of you guys is going to be the jerk to try to argue that under pressure isn't great?
don't think either will step forward. I, I certainly no. am not going to do so. Although I, I, you know, speaking about the larger Hot Space album uh, on the whole, I, I think is is disappointing and is. Well, I mean, it's, it's a disaster for crying out loud. Yeah, there, there, there's a couple of. I mean, Under Pressure is on there. Under Pressure is not part of the Hot Space session. I mean, it's, it's totally different. Um, I will say that that you know, as much as it's thought of as a as a funk kind of dance album and kind of Freddie Mercury's baby, so to speak, the second half has a lot of largely traditional tunes. Doesn't mean they're really good. I, I just the songwriting is off here, the melodies are off here. Uh, Dancer. Is okay. Uh, kind of has some of the heavy elements of Seventies Queen with uh, with a dance beat and a very rigid drum line from Roger Taylor. Uh, Put off the fire is probably the most traditional Queen song on the album. It's all right, uh, but but the album on the whole, and um, I, I can't recall if we have mentioned this yet, but th- this really this really killed Queen in the United States. Um, you know, the eighties work that we're going to talk about in, in a moment, and Jeff r- really likes uh, that sold. Uh, tremendous amounts uh, across the world, but not in the U.S. Some of those albums struggle to get to the top 40 in the U.S., and a lot of it probably can be traced back to Hot Space, which was a disappointment both commercially and um, and critically. Yeah, Under Pressure is is an amazing song. I love it. The live versions of it, you know, they'd, Queen would go on to perform this in their big stadium shows, and obviously David Bowie wasn't there. So Freddie would sing both live parts, and then when they needed to harmonize, Roger Taylor would be singing from the drum kit with the high parts, and it's it's beautiful. Uh, I'm not a huge David Bowie fan, so I actually like the Queen's live versions of this song more than I like the version with Bowie. Uh, there, Jeff, we, we found a way to disagree about the song somehow. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. The album, this is probably the, the album that Queen fans hate the most, right? After the success with Another One Bites the Dust, basically Freddie and John Deacon take over the songwriting, which is a little dubious, but they take over the songwriting or the general sound of the album with a lot of soul, a lot of funk, a lot of synthesized bass. It's funny, if you watch the clips of the band you know, doing interviews for this album, Brian May and Roger Taylor visibly hate this album as it's being released. And they look like you know, just sullen sitting on the couch with the other two. <laughs> you know, John Deacon is very happy. Freddie is pretty happy. Um, May and Taylor hate the songs. Um, even though they, you know, they write some of them, but the sound of the album as a whole as a whole is terrible. They're recording this in Munich. It almost wrecks the band. Yeah, there's a great clips of Freddie in concert when they're touring on this album, sort of defensively apologizing or defending these songs to the audience. It's like the moment in Spinal Tap where they introduce Spinal Tap Mach Two, and the band at the festival, the audience at the festival is sitting down with booing. That's kind of how this album is received. Most of the album is pretty torturous. Um, dancer by that, that is by Brian May with this sort of synthesized bass. It sounds like a bad '80s movie or TV soundtrack. Um, there's an infamous song on it, "Body Language" mm. by Freddie, where he basically takes the "Don't Stop Me Now" approach and <laughs> dials it up to 11, but all just synthesized bass. And if you couldn't and, figure it out, the video helps fill in the blanks. When you're with the yeah, song's it's, about. it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty astonishing. But so let's say a few words in defense of the album. First of all, there are some really great, there's a couple of really great songs on this. In addition to Under Pressure, there is a one great song. Um, the video is terrible. The song is kind of great. It is, it's called Back Chat. It's by the bass player, John Deacon. And it is probably the best version of what Queen is trying to do with this album, with the soul and funk. For me, the best song on the album isn't Under Pressure. It's actually a Brian May song. This beautiful, beautiful song um, called Las Palabras de Amor, The Words of Love. Um, it's this, it starts with a sort of swirling, swirling um, guitar 
I mean, sorry, piano or organ. Um, and, and it goes on into kind of a ballad sung by Freddie in a, in a high voice, but not, you know, a sort of an obnoxiously um, high voice. And the lyrics are just absolutely beautiful. Maybe some of my favorite lyrics. Um, the, the last verse, you know, they, they sort of go through a guitar solo and then things quiet down and they come in with the last voice, the last verse. And Freddie sings, um, uh, uh, this room is bare. This night is cold. We're far apart and we're growing old. But while we live, we'll meet again so that my love I may say once more to you I adore. And it's this beautiful, beautiful song. It's one of my favorite Queen songs. Don't touch me now. Don't hold me now. Don't break the spell, darling. Now you are near. Look in my eyes and speak to me. Those special promises so first of all the album has some great songs second the band basically had to make this album to survive as a band. You know, in a way, it almost broke up the band. But frankly, if they hadn't gone through with this album, Freddie probably would have gone off solo anyway. He ends up doing a solo album in the same vein called Mr. Bad Guy. Um, you know, they do the they do this album together. They then go on tour. The tour is great. The live albums that were put out in the last few years, um, Queen uh, on Fire Live at the Hollywood Bowl and then Queen Rocks Montreal, from both from 82, are just great, amazing performances when they're not doing these most recent songs. I, I consider that tour to be the end of kind of peak Queen. And then finally, I think of this album kind of like Queen 2. Um, you know, even if the album itself is terrible, it's, it helps um, bring about the next album. The next album, I guess, we, you know, transition to Queen Rocks is just the pendulum swinging the entire opposite direction in reaction to how badly this album went. And I think only by taking the, the, the another one bites the dust soul funk thing to its, its, its absolute extreme conclusion, could they then move back to this last stage of Queen that becomes sort of the, the, the memorable 1980s sound that Jeff likes. The thing about the next album, which is The Works, 1984, um, its most famous track doesn't seem like a retrenchment or a return to like 1970s classic Queen. Uh, you hear it, you hear like you hear you know the gated drum, which is a very kind of a 1980s Phil Collins sound. You hear synthesizers coming in. You hear a lot of these very kind of 80s production ticks, and yet. Those things which normally might make a person cringe, especially now and you listen to them in 2018, result in what I, I know this is going to be a contrarian take. What I genuinely do actually consider to be the greatest song of Queen's career, certainly the one that sang to me the most when I was a child and still affects me the most today, which is Radio Gaga. And I know people laugh at that title because it's it, well, because the title of the song is, is flipping Radio Gaga. But that song is beautiful. That song is such a powerful tune. It's such a powerful music video, too, I might point out, if you ever get a chance to see it. Uh, it's, you know, it's Queen's tribute to, you know, the classic radio days of yore and how video, you know, video is killing the radio star, so to speak. But, you know, you've had your time. 
time is and, and what's the line uh, your finest hour is yet to come radio all we hear is radio gaga and it's just one of the most soaring beautiful very 80s songs of their career but i guess it hasn't aged a day i never knew about live aid when i first heard the song i didn't know that it was like a formative part of their legend you know the revival of their flagging fortunes particularly in britain i knew none of that i just heard you know so don't become some background noise all backed up for the girls and boys who just don't know and just don't care and just complain when you're not there and i heard that soaring pre-chorus that went to another pre-chorus that went to that fantastic you know orgasmic chorus and i thought to myself well, okay this is beautiful and even as i left behind so much of the 80s music that i now find to be chintzy and cheesy and dated nothing about that song is ever going to fade for me i really think it's one of their great masterpieces and i don't care if you guys think i'm nuts for saying that This this album is the last piece of the Queen Sound falls into place, and it's, it is Radio Gaga. But more important, I think more fundamentally, it's Roger Taylor starts writing anthems for stadiums. Right, this song is written to be sung in a stadium. Um, John Deacon does "I Want to Break Free," which also the, the you know the, just the way the lyrics are phrased, it's perfect for Freddie to be singing at the end of a stage in a mm-hmm. huge stadium. Same with "Hammer to Fall." The band starts writing these songs for sort of the epic audiences they had started playing for in South America and so on. And of course, America goes away. They don't really tour America. I think maybe they toured for this album, not again, right? To, to the extent that Hot Space didn't kill them in America, the video for I Want to Break Free does <laughs> because it's them, uh, the four guys in drag, mm-hmm. um, as a, a, a parody of a British uh, sitcom. Um, so that kills them in America. But it's a, it's a great album. You know, like by, the way, by the way, Adam, can we all remark him on the irony of the fact that, you know, Freddie Mercury dressing in, in biker garb and basically endorsing <laughs> S&M, gay S&M, didn't kill them in America? But, you know, some you know typical Monty Python-esque British drag for some reason did. I never understood that. I've seen the I Want to Break Free video. It, it isn't exactly racy stuff. I do not understand for the life of me why that was their death sentence commercially. Well, well, because seeing is believing, right? I mean, you didn't see the other stuff on the radio. Not everybody went to Queen concerts, but this is a video. You know, MTV bans it. It becomes news um, because it happens at the video moment. I mean, video really did kill a radio star. In this case, they killed Queen in America uh, because of that video.
just a couple of the notes on this one. Um, this one, again, recorded in Germany, but also in L.A. Um, Brian had spent some time there. He'd done a project with Eddie Van Halen, I think, in L.A. Um, and this this gets sort of that slick L.A. Sound City kind of sound in places. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite songs on the album, um, in addition to Radio Gaga, the second, the second song is called Tear It Up by Brian May. It's just a heavy rocker. Um, Hammer to Fall is the big massive guitar anthem on this album. It's a little slow on the album and live they start speeding it up. Um, but actually my favorite song on this album, it's the third song. It's a, it's totally different. It's, it's big. It's, it's big and epic, but it's a piano based Freddie song called it's a hard life. Uh, it's very rarely played live only a couple of times, but it's just this beautiful, beautiful, this really is sort of an autobiographical Freddie Mercury song. Um, but it's, it's beautiful. It was covered, the best version I've ever seen live was a version that Tom uh, Chaplin from Ke- from Keen, not Queen, but Keen, <laughs> did at a Queen um, uh, uh, charity show. And I'll get back to him later. But um, it's maybe Queen's best ballad. And it's kind of hidden on this album. It was on the British version of Greatest Hits 2, but not on the American classic Queen. But it's great. This is, like I said, the emergence of Queen's third act, where they get into sort of the stadium approach. It re- the, the band is reborn and the stuff that winds up on the cutting room floors and only comes out later is really great there's they they, they record a couple of demos with michael jackson that came out just a couple of years ago they do a, a song called let me live with rod stewart and jeff beck that gets buried until it gets dusted off and, and reworked for the posthumous uh made in heaven album but this is queen at their most productive um uh, just having survived the near breakup, they they put together a, a really great album. Um, uh, the one one other thing, there's a song in the middle called "Machines" or "Back to Humans." It's weird. It's you know robot vocals, synthesizer. <laughs> Dude, that's guitar. the other great song on that album, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. If you if you want a musical touchstone for the song, it's the Night Rider theme song, basically, uh, as done by Queen. <laughs> um, you guys talked about so much, you know, Radio Gaga and Wonder Break Free. I will say, I think my favorite song on this album is absolutely Hammer to Fall. And it is better live, as uh, as uh, uh, as Adam mentioned, but it really smokes live. Even on the album, though, it's just classic stuff. Just a huge, muscular riff uh, from Brian May, that, that call and response between Freddie and, and you know, that, that wall of voices during the uh, the chorus. You know, there's some, there's some Cold War illusions in the lyrics to this thing. I think, as May said later, it was just about life and death, but I'm, I'm not sure I... Totally buy that. Along those same lines, Tear It Up, also really good fist-pumping kind of uh, rock song. And, uh, you know I, know, I know Jeff likes this 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 one an awful lot. I, I think it's very, very solid. Not quite up to, like, that pre-Flash Gordon type work, but but very good. And I guess this is where we want to talk about the Live Aid show, yes? Yeah. 
I mean, chronologically, I mean, I think the context, it's where it fits. By the way, that, that that should be understood about Live Aid, and and I think it was kind of excluded in the film for various reasons. Is that you know Queen was at a crossroads here commercially, but also reputationally because mm-hmm. they were like one of the very few bands that broke the sort of informal cultural embargo on South Africa, right? To play Sun City, you know, for a whites-only segregated apartheid audience, you know, I don't know what the logic they had there was. Maybe it was just like, hey, it's another gig to us or whatever. But they got a lot of blowback for that in the press. I remember, you know, long before I was listening to these albums, I remember reading about that story and remember it being a huge deal. So, you know, not only had their commercial fortunes in America gone into semi-permanent eclipse, but even in Britain, they were getting a lot of flack for, you know, you know, basically you know being callous and indifferent to what was one of the great causes of the era and so they were on their back foot and what do they do they play at live aid everybody remembers live aid who was around during the time i was four and i remember live Aid. <laughs> okay that's how big it was it was you know we we're playing for you know the ethiopians uh, starving children in africa it was a huge deal uh and and queen come on and they this is the stuff of rock legend this is this alone in fact i think if, if this doesn't happen you know queen maybe don't Either they don't get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or or like there's like a lot of questions about whether it's deserved or not. But with this, they cement their reputation forever because they come into a stadium, Wembley Stadium in London, full of 75, 78,000 people, and they just blow the doors off. They have an entire stadium full of people who aren't even necessarily Queen fans just eating out of the palm of their hand. And of course, that famous performance of Radio Gaga, you can go find it on YouTube. You'll see like an entire ocean of people. All we hear is clap, clap, hands above their heads, Radio Gaga, clap, clap, Radio Goo Goo. And Freddie is just loving it. It's just actually so fascinating to see him strut around the stage, (laughs) to see that live act in action during the 80s, and to see him really kind of you know true peak vocal performance too uh i'm not even a huge queen fan as i've said but being you don't have to be a queen fan to just be bowled over by the magnetism of that performance it's famous for a reason You know, they had, they had sort of gestured in this direction on the Works album, you know, despite the Sun City controversy that came along. The last song on the Works is the song called Is This the World We Created? Brian and Freddie write it with, with, with the African uh, drought in mind. Um, and Live Aid comes around. As I understand it, Freddie wasn't thrilled at the idea of performing at first, but Bob Geldof um, got him to do it. I mean, you do think about Queen at that moment. In America, they, they do seem like ancient history by 1985, right? It's been years since their last hit in the United States. Even in, in Britain, they've had, you know, the Works album came out the year before, but they haven't really been a monster hit in, in Britain since 
under pressure. So, so it's been a few years. And for them of all bands to steal the show is pretty amazing. I mean, it helps that I think they, they were one of the few bands that didn't have mufflers on the sound, right? They were able to open things up completely. And so it was just a dynamic change for a lot of the rest of the show. I mean, you watch, you know, one of my other favorite bands, Paul Weller and Style Council, playing at Live Aid. It's a total joke. Um, but Queen takes things over, and it's this moment where Freddie takes what he's been doing in arenas and and in stadiums in South America, and he brings it to England uh, in a way that really changes the band going forward. You know, he he ha- he's always had this persona and this voice that can take over a stadium, but now he's doing it without any light any, any light show, unlike what they've been doing in their usual stage settings, mm-hmm. especially those sort of peak years that I love from seventy eight to eighty two, where they have a you know a a, a big light rig over the stage here it's just that those guys dressed in white you know white jeans white uh tank top um on stage and the sound is what takes it over and freddie's charisma the singing the play back and forth with the with the audience the part where he does sort of a dance you know a ballet or a waltz yeah. with the the cameraman um is is pretty incredible but one of the reasons why queen could pull this off is throughout their career in live concerts they would often take four or five of their their songs and sandwich them together in a quick you know 18 minute medley or so and here they do that with their biggest hits right they run through the rock you we're the champions radio gaga hammer to fall uh they run through them in a hurry because they're used to taking these things and tightening them up and dropping verses not for these songs in particular but here they do it to great effect um at live aid so much so that at the queen of the freddie tribute concert five six years later the band extreme remember them they do the sort of same thing where they're they're opening act for the the tribute concert they they sandwich together you know s- you know four or five queen hits in rapid fire as an homage to the live aid performance but it's really great and it it points the way forward for the band's next album and that last uh, act of the band's career it's really magical I didn't, mean of, that as, I didn't mean that as wordplay, yeah. by the way. I was, I was about to say, speaking of kind of magical, that, that brings us to Kind of Magic, which is, I guess, sort of maybe the soundtrack to The Highlander, kind of. Yes. I'm not sure. But uh, The Highlander, a film, I'm sure that most of you have at least heard of it. You know, there can be only one. It's about a bunch of immortal sword lords who go around chopping off each other's heads. Pretty, actually, great premise, sci-fi fantasy premise, and a ruined by bad direction and a crap script, in my opinion. It's kind of a film I've always been a little frustrated by. But Queen did the soundtrack for it, and that soundtrack ended up becoming most of a kind of magic, although it's never been officially labeled you know, the Highlander soundtrack. For me, this album has two moments that really that stand out to me. Uh, I've always liked the opening song, which ironically comes from another movie, another actually a terrible film called Iron Eagle. Oh, it's, it's not called that Wind. bad. It's got Lou Gossett oh. Jr. in it. Yeah, Lou Gossett Jr. really started slumming after um, Officer and a Gentleman, man. I don't know. Something happened to his career. Uh, but, yeah, the song is called One Vision. And, no, oh, it's, you know, you like Hammer to Fall, Scott. I yeah. think One Vision is a much better version of that same style, like arena queen rocker. That's, again, one of those songs when I heard as a kid, I was like, this is fantastic. Fantastic middle eight. Fantastic anthemic chorus. Boy, that really brings everything together. Um, and then the other one is completely at the opposite end and i think it's one of i'm probably maybe my, my five songs at the end i think it's, it's it's a song that i can never hear uh I, I hear it anachronistically because the name of the song is called who wants to live forever 
It's a Brian May song. In fact, May sings beautifully, in fact. You kind of don't even realize what a fine voice Brian May actually has. But he does those first verses. Um, And, you know, in the the context of the film, it's about this immortal guy who falls in love and marries a woman and has to see her grow old and die uh, as he remains the same age because he's immortal. Um, And it's pretty actually probably the most effective moment in the film and the song itself is just so beautifully moving and of course when i got it in 1992 i heard it in the context of freddie mercury just recently having died uh, of aids and so i thought to myself well this is clearly written about that this is freddie mercury confronting his own mortality i didn't know at the time that it was mostly a brian may song i didn't know at the time that freddie hadn't even been diagnosed at that point yet i didn't know any of that but even to this day i can't listen to who wants to live forever and that incredibly powerful climax that it has without hearing it in the context of you know the the sad the tragic ending to mercury's life and and queen's sort of living and working career Yeah, where I said earlier that Flash Gordon wasn't even the best movie soundtrack that Queen ever did, <laughs> uh, this def- this definitely is. I I love this album. Uh, the as you know, it, it starts off on such a high note. One Vision. In fact, the first two songs, One Vision and the title track, are kind of magic. They're both really written again for stadiums. One Vision is inspired by their experience at Live Aid, and also um, you know drawing uh, lyrical motifs from Martin Luther King Jr. It's technically credited all four, but it really starts with a Roger Tre- with Roger Taylor. And Roger is the credited author of uh, A Kind of Magic. And so, like I said, first with Radio Gaga and then with these two songs, the band, Roger really steps in writing these these epic stadium songs. And so that's great. I also, I agree, Who Wants to Live Forever is a beautiful, beautiful song, one of my favorite Queen songs. Um, at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, where obviously this is going to be a very poignant song, even though, as you mentioned, Jeff, it wasn't by Freddie and it wasn't about Freddie. But at the concert for life, it becomes really about Freddie. And Seal um, sings the song. And it's after George Michael's performance, it is you know another showstopper. Uh, and you see Roger Taylor, the drummer in the background, sort of losing his composure through the song. But it's a, it's a beautiful song. I actually think side two of this album might be my favorite sort of just you know, play from the start to the end um, side of Queen music. It starts with Who Wants to Live Forever. The last three songs are just soundtrack songs uh, from from Highlander. The first one of the three is called Give Me the Prize. It starts off like Van Halen eruption, and then the rest of the album, the song is just very heavy, heavy guitar. Then it goes right on to another Brian May song called, you know, Don't Lose Your Head, taken from the movie. And it's it's very 
sort of heavy and pacing, and it sounds like a, I think of it as sort of a darker version of the Miami Vice theme song, of, of all things, if that makes any <laughs> sense. And then it ends, the album ends with this fast and, 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 and loud song called Princes of the Universe, another soundtrack song. It's one of Queen's best sort of non-hit songs. Freddie in sort of full-powered voice singing on top of this the power chords, uh, high and low power chords, and this this really you know, steady, loud bass and drum. So from the slow song, Who Wants to Live Forever, through these soundtrack songs, this, the second side of A Kind of Magic is really great. And then they go on to tour this album, and all the sort of iconic images of Queen tours after Live Aid, they're really all from this tour, the Kind of Magic tour, mm-hmm. the, the, the concert they do at Wembley, the concert, their last concert with Freddie, which is at Nebworth. And then they also do, they tour Europe and they do a beautiful show in Budapest, which I think is, is available on DVD. And they take their back catalog and these last couple of albums, the works and the kind of magic, and they really reorient them towards a huge stadium show. Now, a lot is lost. What I liked best about Queen, the faster, tighter songs, they, it, that's hard to pull off in a stadium rather than a basketball arena. Um, you just can't do it. So the show becomes very different. There's a huge difference between the Live Killers album from 79 um, and the Kind of Magic Tour concert album from 86. It's two totally different bands. But that this really is Queen at their peak of the 80s sound that Jeff likes. And I add that album. That was one of the albums I had uh, on cassette uh, as a youth, the Live at Wembley 86 uh, album, which is uh, which is from the Miracle Tour, and it, it's very very good. And as you mentioned, very different from the from the Live Killers version of a lot of these songs. Um, I don't like this album quite as much as I think probably both of you. Um, Friends will be friends, which is a Freddie piano ballad, is is good. I like the title track, which uh, just Taylor song that I guess Freddie had reworked and moved some parts around and re- did the lyrics. It's credited to Taylor, but it's Freddie had a lot to do with that. Just kind of a straight pop song uh, with a little bit of '80s sheen on the production on that. And the standout track to me is "One Vision," uh, which is great. If if only for the very very end, but of course you expect Freddie to say you know, <laughs> "One Vision" and you know "Gimme Gimme Gimme." Fried chicken. Okay, uh, Scott, th- that broke my brain as, as an 11-year-old. <laughs> yeah. L- listening to it on Classic Queen, you know, because I was like, you know, I was, I was absorbing each of these tracks, and I was like, yeah, I really love this. Give me, give me, give me fried chicken. I'm like, what? Did I hear that right? <laughs> you know, remember when you had those old CD players, it was a real pain to sort of skip backwards to uh-huh. the end. I, I made myself listen to that about 100 times to confirm that, yes, indeed, Freddie was indeed singing fried chicken. I 
had no idea what he meant then, and I've still never seen a good explanation for it now. But yes, it's oh, we, you know, you got to look up the making of video. Yes, at, at this point, they've left really good. Germany. They're in they're in Montreux in Switzerland, where they do the rest of their albums with an, yet another producer, David Richards. And the making of video is like an eighteen minute video of this on YouTube, where they're 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 walking through the entire process of making this sound. And there's great clips of Freddie just making up nonsense lyrics. <laughs> um, Roger's trying very hard. He's there's actually some interplay where he's really trying to push through some lyrics that just rhythmically don't work and then you get into these jam sessions where freddie is just throwing out total gibberish and the band is kind of laughing as he goes at one point he replaces one vision with john deacon uh and it's just it's it's very it's very very funny The move to the, that last studio in Montreux really does make the difference. The rest of the album sound, the rest of the album's Queen does sound so much different, just in tonal quality, because they're doing it all in this studio that they own um, by a, by a, by a lake in, in Switzerland. And I would argue this is the part where I'm going to just do another one of my hot takes as a non-fan, but that this is all for the better. That you know the expectation that we normally have when we cover these artists with long lives is that you know they have their young heyday and then as they grow old and particularly if that happens to unfortunately coincide with the 1980s and then early 90s and those rather dated production sounds that this ends up being a sort of an aesthetic disaster. Uh, but I'm stunned to go back to listen to these later era Queen albums and find that. Completely unexpectedly to me, especially given how little I liked their classic 70s era, they don't fall victim to that. There's obvious examples of them sort of keeping up with the times, particularly a lot of the synthesizer and keyboard tones. Every now and then you'll hear you know, sequencers and click tracks and drums and things like that. But on the whole, as long as you can get through the fact that they're not hard-edged in the same way that they used to be. You're going to hear some really tough Brian May guitar soloing on a lot of these songs, but they're certainly they're, they're not the same band that did Sheer Heart Attack by any means. Um, this stuff is not dated sounding, and it blows my mind. So I'll listen to stuff like I'm Going Slightly Mad off of Innuendo, and those keyboard sounds, they still work. They still work in 2018. Or I'll listen to stuff off of The Miracle, like even goofy throwaways like with Khashoggi's ship which is the one about like the arms dealer um like yeah first part of that song doesn't make it for me and then suddenly they just burst into this magical middle section and and it ends and they're like oh wait you know what queen still has it uh, and that of course brings us to the next album which is the miracle queen it's 1989 and i guess we just unfortunately cannot discuss this album without discussing what happens first which is that in 1987 <clears throat> you know the party in life catches up to freddie 
this is just so sad, but you know, it's a story that everyone knows. He's diagnosed with AIDS. Now, nobody can know for sure how long he had had it up until that point, uh, but that's when he knows that he has it for sure. And you know, physically, it's certainly in the, in the publicity photographs, you can already see it uh, showing up as early as 1989. He just looks different. He looks a lot thinner, um, you know, especially on that cover. By the way, the cover of The Miracle is one of the most horrifying album covers ever. <laughs> Is, is anybody remember John Carpenter's The Thing, where they yes. go to the Swedish encampment and then they find that <laughs> that alien creature that like it was like two faces that are splitting off? It's like a horror movie kind of a, a, an image. And imagine that, uh, except it's not supposed to be a horror movie image. It's the cover of Queen's latest album. That's what the cover of The Miracle looks like. Uh, but anyways, this is an album that inevitably is inflected for the first time by Freddie's diagnosis, and they understand that everybody in the band has and understands it. Unlike it is these days, it was understood back then that well this is essentially a death sentence we don't know how long it's going to take we don't know how long we have left we don't know what time we have left but we know that our time now is limited and you know i i know that particularly you hear that all over the last album innuendo but i wonder if any of you guys hear that on the miracle as well oh yeah definitely definitely i um the, at this point the band it's not just that they know freddie's you know, ill and dying, but it's also the sort of bunker mentality. The press is all over Freddie. They're all over Brian. He's going through a divorce. Um, one of the songs is written by Brian is called Scandal. It's a direct reference to Brian's personal problems. And so the band goes into this bunker mentality. They know they were not, they're not going to tour again. And so they just settle into the studio at Montreux and they start, you know, producing albums. Now I have to say, like, for all the good things I said about A Kind of Magic, and there's some good spots on The Miracle too, um, it does. It does come dangerously close to dad rock. I mean, a lot of it sounds. I think sounds too much like sort of Phil Collins' 1980s Genesis production technique. It's just a bit too saccharine. And the hey miracle. <laughs> the miracle has uh, some of some of my favorite Queen songs. There's at least three really great songs on it. Um, but a lot of this is it, it kind of like hot space over again, where the where the, the band is doing a lot more with synthesizers and bass. The opening songs, uh, the party and Khashoggi's ship, are sort of ominous ominous signs of the direction the band is headed in. I think they're both terrible songs. I'm not a big fan of the Miracle, which is a very sweet saccharine song written by Mercury and Deacon. Mercury and Deacon write a number of songs that just don't do it for me. Uh, Rain Must Fall, My Baby Does Me. Hey, can um, I tell you what bothers me the most about the miracle? Is yeah. that they ascribe all of these things uh, as being miracles that were clearly just done by the, the hands of, of, of us humans with our feet of clay. So, like, you know, the Taj Mahal, like, that's not a miracle, man. That was built yeah. with a lot of slave labor, okay? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if the fact that, like, you know, all, uh, Jimi Hendrix himself is a miracle or uh, there's all these silly yeah. references to like you know uh, cold warriors fighting with one another. It's a really confused lyric. I do have to confess that as Broadway as it is, it's such a show tune. I it's, do like the music. The song that that song it's it's kind of like Queen's version of uh, Alanis Morissette, isn't it ironic? Right, where no, none of these things are ironic. None of these <laughs> right. things are none miracles. Of these miracles. miracles. <laughs> um, the video for that is actually kind of clever. They bring in basically mini me versions of Queen. They bring in these these four child actors to dress up mm -hmm. like them. They all perform together. It's pretty it's pretty catchy. The best songs on this album, I think, are basically the Brian May, Roger Taylor songs. Um, Brian does a huge guitar anthem called "I Want It All." I love it. I wish if I wish Queen had done one more tour, if only to perform this song, it would have been completely epic. It ain't much
Roger has um, a song called Breakthrough, which has a, it's a lot of drum and synthesizer, but it's a, it's a very but it's good. It's, it's a tasteful great. drum and synthesizer, I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last one, the last great of the three great songs of this album is Scandal by Brian May, which is a lot of guitar that sounds like synthesizer. Um, he really, again, has perfected that sound. But it's it's a it's a ridiculous, ridiculous video that they all hated. Uh, it's sort of acted out on stage. It's it looks stupid, uh, but the song itself is great. compact disc I ever bought I had you know up until this point I had bought all um, cassette tapes I get a CD player for Christmas um, a family uh, an aunt and uncle very kindly give me two CDs one was ACDC live I can't remember what the other one was I um, very as politely as possible returned them both <laughs> and bought uh, Queen the Miracle and uh, it's a, I think the I actually think this album gets worse over time um, it's like a, it's like all the special effects in the the Star Wars reboots. You know, the, the more yeah. we get, so it, it just it looks worse and worse. The sound is worse and worse. But there's a handful of great songs on this. By the way, to um, that to that point, actually, you know, Scott talked earlier about how the worst thing about Fat Bottom Girls is that if you've only experienced the radio edit, right. you don't know how good the album edit is. Well, this mm-hmm. is that in reverse. This is the first time where the album versions of these songs aren't nearly as effective as the yeah. single edits. I think you know, I want it all as a classic example of that. It's much better if it's just when it opens with the single it's just i want it all and then freddie goes hey, 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 hey much better version also the miracle too the album version has this weird kind of like you know bizarre noise interjection at the end of it which is yeah. just like i remember when i heard the album version I was like that's not the version i know because the version i knew would have been from classic queen uh that's never a good sign when uh, you know your album edits aren't as effective as the ones that some guy at the a and r division you know decided to do after you had submitted it to him yeah by the way the on i want it all again concert for life the freddie mercury tribute concert they bring out the who's roger daltrey um to do that one and it's just great it's really great and it's got uh, uh black sabbath's guitar player tony iomi playing rhythm guitar and it's it's absolutely great it was the first time i mean i was a huge queen fan i said that singer's really great what band is he in and that became sort of one of my jumping off points for the who I don't have a lot to say about the miracle, especially. I mean, you guys have covered a, a whole lot of it. I, I just, I've I, I never really have liked it a whole bunch. I think there were at least five singles off this album, and most people I would think would be hard pressed to remember any of them. Maybe I won it all, right? That's, that's one that kind of gets stuck in your brain a bit. I mean, there are some good, there are some highlights here. I, I, I won it all. I, um, I, I always go back and forth on uh, 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 the Invisible Man, and I think I like it. I think I do. Um, and Breakthrough's okay. A lot of the lyrics here are very backward-looking, which is, um, Jeff mentioned, do you hear some of the, you know, kind of dealing with Freddie on uh, Freddie's condition on this album? I, I hear that a bit in some of the backwards-looking lyrics, you know, what, what they've done, what they've accomplished in their career. Um, I, I, I do quibble with the production. I don't think it's aged all that well. And it's really overshadowed, I think, by the last, you know, true Queen 
uh, studio album. Um, you know, they, Made in Heaven would come a little later, but everyone's still on board and, and with us for Innuendo, which was a 1991 release. You know, Freddie was diagnosed, and he was just insistent that he was going to work until he couldn't work anymore. Um, and there's some there's some video from the making of, of uh, uh, videos from Innuendo, and there are stories about how how hard. I think there's one song. So the, these are the days of our lives, perhaps, where yeah. he was really he was really in bad shape, and and you know, other band members didn't think he'd be able to pull up the lyric. And he said something like, "You know, sweetie, don't worry, I got it." And he and he pulled it off. Innuendo as a career closer, you know, um, is better than it has any right to be, really. And I remember thinking that even at the, at the time, I was listening to Innuendo around when it was released and thought. It was pretty darn good for a late career kind of album. Um, you know, the, the, the title track uh, began as a jam. And you can kind of hear that uh, on the album. Headlong has a very thumping uh, kind of, it's quicker than a We Will Rock You, right? But it has that same sort of uh, insistent beat to it, this thump beat to it. And there are two tracks that I think really are what this one's all about. I mean, These Are the Days of Our Lives, which is, which is a Taylor song. And really on this album, how much May and Taylor specifically are writing, you know, for Freddie and channeling things he'd want to say and ways he'd want to say it and then Freddie pulling it off. These Are the Days of Our Lives is a, is a Taylor song. And again, just looking back at what, you know, the, the, the story is you know, looking back on what you've achieved in life. It's a perfect song for Freddie to sing on this album. Oh, I'd like to go back one time on a roller coaster ride When life's just a game No use in sitting and thinking of what you did When you can lay back Show must go on, which uh, which closes the album, I believe. It is a show. It's a showstopper. It's it's just a it's a tremendous vocal performance by Freddie Mercury, especially considering what he was going through and his condition at the time, and and what uh, he and others around him must have known. You would imagine, again, based on seeing some of the video and some of the stories, that he he would just not be along, uh, be around very much longer. Uh, it's, a, it's a good set of songs uh, and performed very well. The, the production is not quite as dated here as it was in the Miracle, I think. It, it still holds up pretty well. It's a darn good album. It's, it's not you know, a career highlight in my mind, but it's a darn good album with which to close in this chapter of Queen's career. I'm stunned at how much I like this album. I think it actually is one of their better albums, maybe one of their three best albums. And of course, you know, again, you, you're talking to the unreliable narrator here, right? Since I'm not a super <laughs> Queen fan. But wow, I, I remember even when I was a kid and listening to the greatest hits that they put on Classic Queen, I remember liking each and every one of these songs, with the exception of Headlong, which always sounded a bit too much to me, like bad late period who, you know, like from the face dances, <laughs> it's hard era. You know, Freddie even has a bit of that Roger Daltrey vibe where like Roger's voice isn't what it used to be and you know Pete isn't really kind of writing the most inspired guitar music because he's focusing on a solo career that kind of a thing you know not a fan of that one of the way I used to be but 
the rest of this hasn't dated. The keyboard sounds shockingly still work. Steve Howe of Yes does that great guest guitar uh, spot on Innuendo. Innuendo is very prog. It actually is, you know, like a, a song that in a good way harkens back to their earliest career and its structure. That's a very proggy early 70s kind of an approach structurally for a Queen song, but it really works. One of the more unlikely number one singles in their history that went to number one in the United Kingdom. Um, but there are just so many other things on this that, 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 that knock me over. Do you know what? You know, Adam spent a lot of time talking about how hey, he's never been a huge fan of Freddie's falsetto, but let me tell you, don't try so hard. What a beautiful, almost entirely falsetto vocal Freddie gives to that song. That, you know, coming through all this experience, listening to all of their music, you know, not being so impressed along the way, and then hearing that near the end of his life, what he was still capable of bringing. You know, not only just in terms of pure chops, but as an emotional interpretation to that music. That was impressive. But if you fall and take a tumble, it won't be fun. If you fail, you must grumble. Thank your lucky stars. Just savor every muffin and treasure every moment when the storms are raging round you. Stay right where you are. Ride the Wild Wind and All God's People. Those are also great. And I'll tell you, you know what? I mean, uh, I am st- I am so impressed that even at the end of his life, he's weakened by AIDS. He's weakened by physical deterioration. Freddie Mercury still had the strength to write a song capable of annoying the ever-living sh- out of me, which is Delilah, a song about his cat that I absolutely hate and yet I secretly like it too because it's exactly the kind of song that I never would have tolerated from him during the mid-70s and yet somehow the production touches on it in the 90s I don't know. It works in a way that it never would have worked if Roy Thomas Baker had been working with them back, you know, in uh, you know, in London in 1975. Even the stupid meows that are matched by <laughs> Brian May's meow guitar. Oh, it's a dopey, dopey song. And yet, as much as I hate it, I grudgingly admire it. You know, congrats, Freddie. You managed to get on my nerve one last time. I'm actually proud of you. Um, you know, beyond that, there are a couple songs I don't like. Hitman is a bunch of generic slop. Uh, but this is an album that closes with The Show Must Go On, which, you know, dramatic, bombastic, theatrical in every way that Queen has ever been is basically the perfect tailor-made coda to their entire career. And they had to know that it was, that it was the ending. You know, when Freddie sings, the show must go on, even as he knows it's not going to. He says, you know, I'll take it to the wind, I'll take it to the end, and I'm never giving in. Oh, the show must go on. Um, yeah, there's just no way, even for non-fans, to listen to a song like that and, and not be bowled over. Uh, biggest shock of the show for me is saying that I think that Queen's last album, their last real album, is one of their best ones. Yeah, it's great. You know, Queen, they record the miracle, they put it out. They know they're not going to tour, so what do they do? They just bear down in the studio in Switzerland, and they just keep recording as much as they can while Freddie's healthy. When he's not feeling up to it, he's either in his apartment in Switzerland or he's back in London, but he comes back. Um, and this album is 
is uh, is really something. Now, you mentioned the falsetto. You do get the, the the you do start to pick up on his voice coming full circle. It's gone from the early falsetto to the sort of the deepening, you know, broadening voice from the game, those albums, and then the sort of stadium anthems from a kind of magic and the works and i want it all well here his voice it does start to to dial back so there's more falsetto it's different it's falsetto with more poignancy which might be why you, you like it more um it's but but it, it is sort of coming full circle with the early albums they recorded from 89 to 90 it's released in february 91 freddie's dead in november of 91 and i basically agree with your assessment of the album that opening song innuendo it harkens back to just the the creativity, the sort of multi-movement, multi-layered songs of their early albums. Again, I said one of the early influences was clearly Led Zeppelin, and here that comes through. Innuendo is like their version of Cashmere. Again, at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, who sings Innuendo? Uh, Robert Plant. Um, I'm not a fan of I'm only slightly mad. The rocker songs that you mentioned, Headlong and I Can't Live With You, um, uh, Ride the Wild, those are Brian May songs, Ride the Wild Wind, which is Roger Taylor. Um, you know, those are songs that Roger and, and Brian are working on, you know, maybe even for their own solo albums. In that brief period between, or not brief, it's a few years, between A Kind of Magic Tour and the Miracle album, you know, Freddie's off doing his opera thing, Barcelona with, what's her name, Montserrat Cabal. And uh, Brian is trying to record a solo album that ends up coming out. He finishes it after Freddie dies called Back to the Light. Roger has a whole second band called The Cross that he fronts and plays rhythm guitar on. And he's, he's working through a lot of these rock songs. And so on the deluxe version of this song, you get the original demos, which almost like they basically are the finished song, but with a guide vocal by either Roger or Brian. And so that sort of, in some ways, kind of you know, cliched 80s rock, late 80s rock sound. It's because Roger and Brian are writing cliched ladies, late 80s rock songs. When Freddie dies, Brian goes on a solo tour, and you can see the clips of this. It's nothing like a Queen show. You know, it's a huge band of guys that look like they belong in Bad Company or something. And, you know, girl backup singers, you know, all staged around and, and keyboards and percussion. That's where Brian's music was headed. Um, a couple of high points on this album, in addition to what we already mentioned. There's the song Don't Try So Hard that you mentioned. It's this beautiful song, mostly sung in Freddie's falsetto. But in the middle, there's this hugely powerful middle section where Freddie sort of goes back into overdrive with the power voice. And you get the layered vocals from the 70s. You get the layered guitars from the 70s before it then kind of settles back into a guitar solo and the and the falsetto at the end. Um the show must go on, you know, a beautiful, amazing song. What better note to end on? It's basically the same chords, I think, as I want it all. And it's written by Brian, but it's obviously a very different song. And then these are the days of our lives. 
which is the last video they record. Freddy looks terrible. They do the video originally in black and white to sort of hide the fact of how gaunt he is. Then you see the color version, and Freddy still looks like he's in black and white Mm -hmm. um, because he's so pale and he's so thin. Um, At the end of the song, the last lyric is sort of Freddy saying, you know, I still love you, and he sort of whispers it into the camera. It's this beautiful moment um, on the video. Um, You know, Freddie, you know, famously, his whole look of the 80s was sort of tough guy, mustache. As soon as he finds out about his AIDS diagnosis, you know, he shaves off the mustache. That's why there's no mustache on the cover of the uh, Miracle album. But he then has to grow a beard right back to sort of cover up the fact that his face is thinning so much. And, you know, he's starting to get some lesions on his skin. At the end of his life, in those last couple of videos where the, he's shaved the beard again, and now you see how gaunt he is, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really horrific. Um, and his physical condition is terrible at this point. As they record this album and the one that comes afterwards, he's basically lost an entire foot. Um, and the band is sort of vaguely aware of how bad it is, but not completely until Freddie really lets them in on this. I mean, it's astonishing that they made this album under those conditions. And I guess that, that lends, uh, you know, that explains the power, uh, and the, the poignancy and the desperation behind making this album and then finishing the album uh, that comes next that, you know, Freddie dies in the middle of. So yeah, you want to you want to tell us something about uh, Made in Heaven and, and the circumstances under which it was released. This is an album that, that just for those who aren't aware is a posthumous Queen album. And yeah. when I heard about its existence, I can tell you, I rolled my eyes back into my skull and was like, "Well, this is gonna suck. Well, this is just gonna be a disaster. I mean, this is this is cash in exploitation crap." But that's not really quite what it was at all. It was really kind of basically Freddie's wishes. Like, listen, I I got this is what I got left. I want you to to do what you can while I'm still alive and do what you, you know, make something out of it. And when I listen to it in prep for the show, I don't, I don't love it. I don't think it's a great album, uh, but it, it's not a shame. It, it's no disaster. It's certainly not a debacle. It very, very much to my mind is, you know, a continuation of the sound that they created on innuendo, even if it came out four years later. But uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I had sort of the same expectations as you when the album came out. And by then I wasn't even, I was sort of transitioning out of listening to Queen and I was listening more to, to the Who and the Kinks and the Small Faces and so on. Um, so I was curious to hear what it sounded like and I was worried of how bad it might be. And it turns out to be an album with some extremely powerful moments. Like you said, Freddie dies, you know, after, you know, the last few months, he's recording whatever snippets of vocals he can. You know, for the first time, they're they're coming up with vocal lines and then just figuring, well, we'll we'll create the music afterwards. Does everybody knows that's what they're doing? And so, a couple of these songs on the album are the are Freddie's last vocals. There's one song, you know, the, the high point of the entire album is called uh, Mother Love. Um, again, Freddie, you know, one of his last songs is about family and his relationship with his, his parents, and it's this hugely powerful song. You know, the, you know the vocals are extremely uh, the, the, the they're they're very high powered. You know, stunning that somebody in his condition could sing like that, and he's doing it. You know, hunched over the soundboard. He's not even in the proper studio. You know, Mike's he's hunched over the soundboard, propping himself up, singing you know little snippets of lyrics. He does the covers. He handles the first two or three verses, you know, says he'll be back. He you know, goes back to London for a bit, says he'll be back to finish. He never finishes it. So the last verse in that song is actually sung by Brian May after, you know, Freddie dies. Now, uh, most of the songs on the album aren't actually from those circumstances. <clears throat> what the band did was they went back to either songs that they had done much earlier that were never released or never finished, or they took a couple of songs from Freddie's solo album, Mr. Bad Guy, and they reworked the backing tracks with full, with full Queen treatment. Um, 
you know, for example, I mentioned when they did the works, they did a session with, with Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck. It's the song called Let Me Live. It actually borrows pretty heavily from, you know, uh, Janis Joplin taking another piece of my heart um, with these great sort of choir vocals by Mercury, May and Taylor. It's a really great song. Another great one. They take a song that Roger did in his side band called The Cross called uh, Heaven for Everyone. And just since this is a National Review podcast, I want to be clear, I'm not in favor of, of amantizing the eschaton, uh, but Queen does a nice song called Heaven for Everyone. Uh, saying this could be, I had to work that in. Um, saying, you know, this could be Heaven for Everyone. It's actually a, a Roger Taylor song that Freddie recorded a vocal on for, I think, the American version of the Roger Taylor song. <laughs> but it's it's a lot of that, of piecing together old parts of, of old songs. So there's this nice touch at the end of Mother Love where they actually sample in stuff that Freddie did before he joined Queen under the name Larry Lurex. It's pretty cool. I want to long in this lonely lane. I've had enough of this same old game. I'm a man of the world. They say that I'm strong. My heart is heavy and my hope is gone. Well, I mean, Scott, do you have any thoughts on it before? I mean, I know that before we move on to the final uh, uh, naming of our songs, uh, I think Adam wanted to say something about what he thinks about the weird sort of afterlife or half-life of Queen's post-Freddy career. Do you have any thoughts on Made in Heaven? I don't really. I I, I may. I I think I may have heard it once. It's it's. uh, um, it's fine. It's not an embarrassment, but there's nothing there that I really um, consider core to the uh, to, to the discography, I suppose. All right. Well, then, then, Adam, I want you to explain to us why you're a huge, huge fan of Adam Lambert era Queen. Right. Well, I'm not. I'm not. And I'll get to that. You know, it's. I think what what Queen ended up doing, or what Brian May and Roger Taylor ended up doing with the band, is, is somewhat unfortunate. You know, they do the concert for life, which is really amazing, and it's amazing because they bring in all of these singers. From Axl Rose and James Hetfield to Roger Daltrey and Robert Plant to uh, Elton John and um, Liza Minnelli, right, singing We Are the Champions. And it's kind of cool because you see all these aspects of Freddie's, you know, voice, Freddie's persona. And, you know, then Brian goes on his solo tour and they do the Made Made in Heaven um, album. And it's not clear what's going to happen next. I mean, you sort of assume it's like uh, the, the Doors, right, where the singer dies and they kind of tinker around with some things and then it just kind of goes away. And in fact, John Deacon, again, the most normal member of the band, mm-hmm. he retires after, a, you know, a, a charity show with Queen and, and Elton John. Um, and they do one last song without Freddie um, for a, actually a great compilation album called Queen Rocks, which is just all of Queen's best hard rock songs. Um, on one album, they do one more song without him. It's not actually; it's pretty not a very good song at all. But then, you know, Roger and Brian just kind of keep working things over. They 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 produce a Queen stage musical called "We Will Rock You." They do some collaborations. They go on a tour with with Paul Rogers, a bad company, and you know it was kind of a, a nice concept. You know, Queen plus Paul Rogers. They do mostly Queen songs, a couple of bad company songs, and Paul Rogers. You know, in many ways, has a voice like Freddie in terms of the hard rock sound. And it really exemplifies that. And the best thing Queen probably could have done if they wanted to 
you know, soldier on would have been a series of tours where it's Queen plus whoever. You know, I kind of jotted down thinking about the show, you know, people who could have fronted like a great tour with Queen. Obviously, George Michael, who kind of stole the show at the tribute concert. You know, you think about what Queen could do on a tour with Lady Gaga, who of all people in the music scene today is probably the most like Freddie Mercury in terms of over-the-top, artistic sort of self-construction. Um, her name inspired by the song Radio Gaga. You know, or imagine Queen doing a tour with Adele, right, and focusing on that side of their music. I mean, mm-hmm. it would be extremely powerful. The best person they could have brought in for a tour, I alluded to earlier, was Tom Chaplin from the band Keen. Uh, he did a song I mentioned earlier at a charity concert. He does one song, uh, It's a Hard Life, from the Works album, and it's a st- Astonishing! Um, it's it's on YouTube, and I highly recommend it. It's a, you know, he really has more than anybody else I've heard sing Queen songs, both the power and the range, almost the range of Freddie Mercury. And you you see clips from his band Keen doing uh, Under Pressure. They do a knockout cover of Under Pressure at a festival. He does the Show Must Go On at a solo show. And it's funny in preparing for this podcast, I stumbled upon the fact that just a couple of weeks ago, this guy actually did an entire taped an entire BBC Radio Two special just his tribute to Queen. It's going to come out evidently in the spring, and the clips are online, and it's incredible. It would have been great if Queen would have done a tour with him, but instead what they've done is settled into this Queen and Adam Lambert thing, and I think it's the worst possible thing they could have done because Lambert, as far as I can tell, is doing sort of a Freddie Mercury impersonation, Mm -hmm. except without the real – his voice is, is much thinner than Freddie's. It doesn't have the same power, and so you get sort of this screechy version of a, a Freddie Mercury impersonation that I think has been pretty unfortunate. One thing if they did like one tour with this guy, but the fact that they've now been touring with him for five years is just inexplicable. I think it's a total lack of creativity and he, really he, begins to water down the, the whole idea of, of, of the Queen sort of musical legacy. Yeah, he can hit the notes, but he doesn't have the, the timbre. He doesn't have the richness in his voice. Uh, he's uh, it, It's a bit sounds like I, I listened to some tracks when we mentioned that you wanted to talk about this on the show. And he, it really does. Unfortunately, it sounds a little bit like karaoke queen. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I haven't heard uh, them. Yeah. I haven't heard them together, but I know Adam Lambert from uh, the American Idol days. And I would never think that would be a good match uh, with him singing queen song. So it's not surprising that uh, that a, a queen fan like Adam is not a fan of that combination well actually you know queen the, the we say queen but i mean brian may and roger taylor because again john deacon is a is a normal human being who decided not to do any of this he and you know go back to his normal life he's kind of a he's kind of a specter he pops up every once in a while people are trying to figure out where he is and he just leads a normal life in a normal house with his wife and family um but taylor and may show up on the show american idol mm-hmm. to perform with the, all the different contestants and i remember seeing this episode i never watched american idol that much but I knew Queen was going to be on. I wanted to check it out. And my first reaction was, oh, this Adam Lambert guy might be kind of well-suited for Queen. But then by the end, and I think they might have come back to perform after he won or whatever, I just got this sinking feeling of, oh, no. <laughs> this, this, I don't like where this is headed. And it's been every bit as bad as I can, um, uh, as I can imagine. I didn't go see them when they came through D.C. You know, I, I won't. I'm just hoping, actually, now that, that Tom Chaplin is doing – he did his BBC special. Maybe, just maybe, we'll get him to do a tour with Queen. But at this point, you know, May and Taylor, they continued kind of that bunker mentality from the press from 87 to 91 and protecting Freddie's legacy and protecting Queen's legacy. 
Um, but they've they've really carried it on in this way that now finally with this movie, which had been in the works for years, this really troubled production where, as Sasha Baron Cohen tells the story, the Queen guys were really micromanaging the script mm-hmm. and really trying to downplay the you know the more wild side of Freddie's life. You know, again to protect Freddie, and they end up <clears throat> producing this movie, which I haven't seen. I don't know if I will see. Everything I've heard about it, though, sort of con- con- confirms my worries about Queen trying to micromanage, you know, and, and, and cash in on this legacy in a way that I think really waters down Queen's legacy. I just love the music, and I, I don't like seeing what's happening with it now, especially with this this movie. And uh, that brings us to a close, in fact, guys, um, as we look at a Queen here on Political Beats. And it brings us to the part of the show in which all of us recommend to uh, you, the fine listener, uh, two albums that we think you really need to own and five tracks you just need to hear from Queen. And we give our guest the floor first, Adam White. Find him on Twitter at Adam J. White DC. Uh, your two albums, your five songs. Great. Okay, so two albums beyond the greatest hits, obviously. Yes. Um, I'd say The Game... And uh, news of the world, with you know honorable mention for a kind of magic. Um, here's my five songs. I could tick through five greatest hits, but I'd say what I'd rather do is the five songs. I that if you like Queen's hits, the five songs that aren't hits that you ought to check out. I'd say are as I already said. Let me entertain you. You know the live version, one of the live versions. Uh, Las Palabras de Amor from the Hot Space album. Uh, it's a hard life from the Works. Um, Dragon Attack from the Game. And then, uh, you know, I have three here. I guess I'll cheat, or I'll, I'll go with I'll go with Teo Toriate, uh, Let Us Cling Together from A Day of the Races. Five songs that I think exemplify some of Queen's best moments. Jeez, Adam, that, Adam, Adam, we've gone this long. You might as well just give us those other two anyway. Uh, the other two are <laughs> Princes of the Universe and I'm in Love with My Car. That's fine. We're not going to banish you from the show because you no. went to seven instead of five. Uh, Jeff cheats on that all the time. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> two albums that uh, I, I, they ended up being back to back. I think jazz and then into the game is is peak queen. I mean, uh, there are so many different styles and so many different types of songs through the career. I mean, from the styles on Queen and Queen Two to the uh, you know, the big stuff on Night at the Opera. But I, I think the best they they got was on jazz and especially the first side of of the game. So those, those are the two albums I would recommend. And uh, my five songs, I, tr- I tried to, I mean, again, the, the, the type of songs in the career are so varied. Uh, I, I guess I lean more toward the, the rock side of things uh, than the, the Freddie Mercury side of things uh, with these choices, but that's the way it is. You're My Best Friend is, uh, is, is my number one uh, song on this list. Uh, now I'm Here, which I so love. Uh, I think Dead on Time from Jazz is just a killer track. Um, and then from the game, um, people know the hits, but I, I actually will echo Adam. I know he's a big fan of Dragon Attack. That's on my list of five. And from the late uh, later era, I think Hammer to Fall, especially in the live version when it, when it just it's sped up just a little bit, is just about as good as Queen can get to. So Hammer to Fall is my uh, my fifth song on that list. Uh, over to you, Jeff. Well, if you've ever wanted to hear a guy who's avowedly not a fan of Queen tell you what his best favorite <laughs> Queen albums are, here he goes. It's Sheer Heart Attack, for one. It's the rock side of Queen, and it's jazz, and that's the pop side of Queen. They did some other great stuff, particularly into the 80s, which ironically enough, and I didn't do this on purpose, I just realized that it happened this way, that's where most of my top five songs end up clustering. The one that I have from their 70s era is Stone Cold Crazy, a song we didn't really talk about too much, but which I'm really taken with because it does sound like it was B 
beamed in from a decade ahead. Sounds like it could have come out of uh, Husker Du or uh, you know Black Flag or you know you know even uh, you know the Minutemen for that matter. Uh, but for the rest of them, I mean, these are obvious picks to me, and I've talked about them a lot on the show, so you know why I feel the way I do. Under pressure. Radio Gaga, Who Wants to Live Forever, and what I consider to be one of the more of powerful and moving sort of fitting self-written ends to a career, the show must go on off of innuendo. All right, there we go. The Political Beats look at uh, Queen, which by my eyes could set some length records here. We'll have to see what happens <laughs> in its final form. We uh, thank our guest today on the program, uh, Adam White, law professor, think tank researcher, writing in Law and Democracy, find him in Wall Street Journal, Weekly Standard, National Affairs, other publications, and on Twitter as well, at Adam J. White, D.C. Adam, thanks for bringing your passion and knowledge of Queen to the show. Oh, thanks, guys, and thanks for giving me the chance to get back uh, better acquainted with the music. Uh, Jeff, you can find him on Twitter at EsotericCD. It's a good thing I got all my deliverables out in the morning, Scott. <laughs> and you find me on Twitter, too, at Scott Bertram. Uh, remember, subscribe to our feed, to New episodes at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at NationalReview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews, and find the show on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.